Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Joe here. Uh, I hope that you listened to part one of this episode yesterday, and uh, I'm going to introduce part two to you here. I won't have any sort of uh, extended intro like I usually do and like I did for part one. We'll just jump right into part two where I left off yesterday. So um, I hope you enjoyed part one, and here's part two. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. The spinning, spinning, who's he going to go after? The puck drops and Bob Just a minute, Al Arbor has won mm-hmm. four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. So like I said, the media um, was very good to me. And I think it's very important because, uh, to be honest, the media can make or break you. And I, I think for myself, one of the reasons why I think they were so good to me was because my story never changed. I think uh, a lot of members of the media, if they sense that you're a bullshit artist, they're going to uh, seize upon that. And as I would tell the story and retell the story and retell the story over and over again, it was always the same thing. And, uh, I always, uh, quote, I, I say, I quote judge Judy because I honestly don't know if anyone said it before her, but she said, uh, when you tell the truth, you don't need a good memory. And that's because you're telling the truth. Now, if I'm bullshitting you or if I'm telling stories, uh, yeah, I need a good memory, but I, I think, um, once the story came out that day that uh and then uh and i'll talk about doing the subsequent interviews i think the people in the media they knew i was telling the truth and uh and i came across that way so i'm I'm always grateful for that because uh like i said the whole thing with the subway hero thing that was created by uh the media and while i was never totally comfortable with it and i'm really not comfortable with it to this day it is what it is you know and uh I, they could have called me a lot worse. So I think with the exception of there were, there was one story written by someone in the village voice, uh, that, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think he said from hero to candy ass or something like that. And, um, I'm not sure if at the time they were, they were still a paper that's, I don't even know, like if they're still printed, I don't know if they if they were being printed at the time or if it was strictly an online paper, but uh, the comments were pretty humorous. Um, he got the uh, they the people laid into him pretty good, so that made me laugh. And I mean, um, I'm not 
I'm not here to to uh, make everyone happy. I just basically tell you what happened and you decide. Um, there was a writer for the Philadelphia Daily News who wrote a really, really nice piece about me. Um, and then I'm jumping ahead here, but when I announced the lawsuit, uh, he basically they wrote an article about the uh, about me uh, coming up with the lawsuit, and it wasn't it wasn't overly critical, but uh, I think there were some things in there that weren't necessary. But again, it was it is what it is, you know. Um, and then, like I said, aside from that first article written before I spoke to the media by that gentleman in the daily news where he praised uh terrence howell for being fucking superman i guess um media was awesome to me so uh so i have no complaints with that so um i get uh, like i said i get discharged on sunday afternoon i go downstairs i talk to the reporter for the times we do the interview uh take a bunch of pictures now andrea and i are heading back to long island because now um, this week, well, I actually, I guess at this point, I didn't know what, what lie ahead, what, what lay ahead for me that week. But, uh, the kids were, were at my mom's and, um, you know, there was no reason for me to go back to Philadelphia right away. I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't going back to work. Uh, the kids weren't going to school that week. Uh, Andrea wasn't going to work. So, we were going to stay at my mom's because I really didn't know what was what was going to happen uh, this week. I didn't know anything about the process. So um, on the ride home is when the article from the Daily News writer hit the Internet. And it's amazing uh, how much if someone wants your number, they're going to find your number, even if it's uh, if it's just your cell phone. You know, it's easy to find, I guess, a, a landline if you have one. Uh, but members of the media, they have a way of finding your uh, your cell phone info. So we're actually driving home from, well, driving to my mom's from Bellevue. And um, my phone starts blowing up. And it's numbers I don't know. And uh, But I remember just looking at my phone. And this is 20, 2011. Uh, <laughs> it could be. It could be 2018 when I say this, but it was 2011, so I had a flip phone, and I, like I said, I had a, I had a flip phone. I think till 2018, but uh, it's blown up, and I, I think I said to Andrea, "Well, I guess that article hit the internet, and that's exactly what happened." So, um, I, I was tired. You know, it was, let's say this was mid afternoon of Sunday. It really was uh 30 hours 35 hours after the whole thing happened you know so it wasn't it wasn't that i had time to rest and recover because like i said that that sleep i tried to get on saturday night was horrible and um you know the whole ordeal takes a lot out of you it wasn't just a lot of blood that i lost I, you know energy and everything but i just um i just wanted to be with andrea on the ride home and um we get to my mom's and I start listening to the messages and there were messages from, um, good morning America from the today show. Um, a few other places at that point, like, I guess, you know, I, I guess they must have interns that just really monitor the websites for these newspapers. And, and it was obviously a, a big story when 
you know, a spree killer is captured and it's a big story when the cops are heroes and it's a bigger story that actually when the truth comes out. So we got back to my mom's house and I, like, I don't have a preference. The only, the only, um, news station that I, I was a fan of was our local Fox station down in Philadelphia, Fox 29. And, um, as far as national stuff goes, like, Today's show is is competing with Good Morning America. I didn't have any loyalties there, so I basically just called them back in the order that they called me. And um, I, Good Morning America had called first, so I called them back, and um, the arrangements were made. I, I God, they were picking us up Monday morning, and I, I want to say uh, maybe five five in the morning. They it was it was something incredibly early, and um, I called the Today Show, and I. I basically said to them, look, uh, you know, good morning, America had called us first. And, uh, so I called them back first. They're going to, they're picking me up. I'll be on their show. I'm more than happy to come and do your show afterwards, but I guess they're competing with each other. So they don't, they definitely, uh, didn't want me after, uh, good morning, America had me on. I guess that, that would kind of defeat the purpose. Um, while this is going on, we had uh, friends down in Philadelphia, one, uh, one uh, lady, Kathleen, and um, she actually reached out to Fox 29 and basically said, hey, you know, this whole thing that's going on with this guy in New York City, the guy that lives in Philadelphia, well, he's actually a, a big fan of your network, and uh, he's a big fan of Steve Keeley, who's one of their reporters there and I, and I I was a big fan of Steve's and and I still am even though I don't get to watch him on TV anymore but uh I was like yeah so I I was like oh that'd be all right you know get back to Philadelphia and and chat with these people and everything cuz I enjoy their uh, enjoy their news I enjoy their coverage and uh yeah that'd be cool to do and as the day went on um more and more people were calling but honestly i was really tired and i didn't want to put the burden of getting back to people on andrea or anyone else so i would go in spurts where i would return calls whatever but like i said it, it, it kind of happened in spurts then it tailed off a little bit and then it was it was late maybe it was 11 o'clock 11 30 at night phone rings and it's a philadelphia i, I don't remember if it was a philadelphia area code or or new jersey area code and I, I picked it up at that time of the night. I figured it's got to be someone, you know, up there. And it was Steve Keeley from from Fox 29. So um, he basically said that uh, he was going to come up. They were going to send a crew up uh, Monday morning to uh, to interview me. And I told him that I had already had something arranged with Good Morning America. And he said, OK, perfect. Um, I'll meet you on uh there's an island outside of of the studio there uh that separates i guess the main main road and um i guess the side road whatever it is it's it's that basically an island he said actually what you do is when you're done um on the show call me and let me know and i'll meet you by the back door there and i'll take you out i'll escort you out and he said um you know, just so you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of reporters there. And I said, really? Like, I, I didn't, I didn't, I guess maybe it's just being naive, but I didn't really understand just how big of a story it was. And, um, 
maybe it's just my nature. Like I just, I didn't understand it. You know, I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't understand why people would want to talk to me. And he said, he goes, there's going to be a lot of reporters there tomorrow. And I said, well, listen, I mean, I'm loyal to you guys. You're going to make the trip up from Philadelphia. So, you know, if you meet me somewhere and you grab me, you know, we'll walk over to where, where your truck is and, and we'll take care of that first. And then I'll talk to everyone else, you know, no problem. And, you know, he said, perfect. And that was it. So Monday morning and keep in mind when, when we get in the, the SUV on Monday morning, like I said, it's maybe five, five thirty. It's actually less than 48 hours after the incident. It's, uh, you know, you're probably talking about 44, 45 hours after. So it's technically not even two full days after everything happened. And, uh, you know, listen, I agree to it. And, uh, again, I think a lot of it maybe at that point was adrenaline. And I was fine. Like, I got up. Everything was good, you know, jump in the shower, wake you up a bit, relax on the way in. And, uh, and, and we go in and we do, uh, we do good morning America. Now this was, uh, educational on, on a number of levels. The first, so this would be the first interview I did, uh, first electronic interview. So I had done those few newspaper interviews, but this is going to be the first one that I did on camera. And if you go back and watch it, I think, I think it shows, I was very nervous, um, and uh, I, if I go back and I haven't watched it in, well, I honestly say in a year because uh, every year on the day on the anniversary, um, I go back and I kind of, uh, I watch a lot of the coverage. And um, it, I, I said this yesterday, actually, uh, every time I watch it, I actually, I think I learned something new. I see something I never noticed before. Um, so it, it's not, it's just something to just remember, not that I need the, the refresher course, but you know, it's, it's part of my history. It's part of my family's history. So it's something that I just do. So, um, I do that every year. And, uh, like I said, it's, um, good morning America was, it was really like, it was overwhelming, you know, um, we walk into the studio and, um, God, you know, I don't really watch the show. And uh, there's the weather guy there. He's a blonde-haired guy and everything, and he's really famous. And uh, I, geez, I don't remember his name. I apologize for that. But he's there, and he's really friendly. He's a really, really nice guy. Um, everybody, everybody there in the, uh, in the studio was nice. But, I mean, it's a big deal, Good Morning America. And there's a lot going on. But everyone was wonderful. Everyone was wonderful. And then I meet Robin Roberts. And I had known Robin Roberts from her days at ESPN. And then she moved on and, and she did, uh, you know, Good Morning America and everything. And I, I tell people all the time, like, she was the absolute perfect person for me to do my first interview with because, man, she really put me at ease. And she basically just said, she goes, look, there's cameras. You're going to notice the cameras. But just have a conversation with me. You know, we're at a table here, we're on set, but we're at a table. Don't worry about what's going on around me. Just you look at me, we're having a conversation. Let everyone else do their job. You just focus on me. And I remember just this really sense of calm that came over me. I, I was like, all right, I could, I could do that, you know, and just talk about it. And I remember when 
before we actually started our conversation, they did this graphic that they had made up and um, sort of recounted the events of that morning. And um, it just wasn't right because it was based on what the police had said happened. So uh, what it showed was basically me just being the victim and Terrence Howell being the hero. I didn't really think that that was the right time to, uh, I don't want to say rock the boat. Um, I was just going to tell the story and let people decide from there uh, what they uh, what they think. But I didn't want to go, you know, that that whole graphic, that recreation is is wrong. But it, I, I didn't. It was to, Like I said, to me, it wasn't the time. And, uh, again, I was nervous. I really was. I mean, as great as Robin Roberts was, I'm now going to be on camera in front of millions of people. And, uh, you know, her advice was fantastic, but it really was, I was still going to be on TV in front of millions of people. So again, I didn't think this was the right time to rock the boat, but they showed the graphic and we, and we did the interview. And I tell you, if, if I come across well in interviews from that day on, I, I give full marks, full credit to Robin Roberts for really helping me get acclimated to that because she was absolutely wonderful. So uh, I definitely, um, whenever I'm asked about it, I, I always go right back to that first, first interview where she basically said, don't worry about what's going on around us. And you know what's funny? When you think about it, it seems like something that's common sense, but you don't think about it in the moment until someone who's a veteran like that, Robin Roberts, would say that. Don't worry about it. Just have a conversation with me. It really, it, it was phenomenal. Like everything changed from that moment, but I was still nervous. I, I definitely was. And I think it, I think it shows when you watch the interview, but, but I made it through. Okay. And, and it was, uh, it was fun, you know, so we're done with the interview and we get down by the, uh, by the exit. I call Steve Keeley and um, he goes, remember what I told you last night about the amount of reporters? And I said, yeah. He goes, there's a lot of them out here. And and what he said was, the reason why he said there were going to be a lot of reporters is, he said, you're doing Good Morning America. Everyone will watch that show. And word will spread quickly that you're on that show. So the other media outlets know that you're on Good Morning America. They see that you're in the studio. They will flock around there to talk to you when you get out of there. And he was right. And there were a lot. And I think all the major networks were represented. And, you know, I, the one thing I've always tried to do with this situation when dealing with the media and talking to anybody was I always want to be in control of the story. I don't want the story to control me. So as we were walking to the Fox 29 van, a lot of the reporters came over to me and they, they wanted to talk to me and they're, you know, doing their job i mean they really are they they weren't annoying they were again very respectful and i said hey just do me a favor i said you know he, he came up from philly i promised him he'd be the first guy I speak to i will give you all the time that you want but just let me handle this first um and then i'll, I'll answer every single question you have so um andrea and i were on uh we're on Fox 29 a little bit, and uh, she's always embarrassed by that. She doesn't like the way she looks, uh, you know, and she definitely doesn't like the way she sounds. I, of course, love both things about her. And um, 
you know, but again, she'd never been on TV before. Not, you know, I'd been on TV once, but um, she was, she was cool. She was cool about it that she did it. And, um, you know, Steve was wonderful. He was great. He, he, uh, he, you know, similar to Robin Roberts, he just had a way of making us comfortable and he really was fantastic. He was very cool. And, um, you know, when the reporter started talking to me, uh, I was in clear view of the SUV that was there to take us home. They never told me what time it was. So basically I told the reporters, I said, listen, I'll be here all day for you. But the minute I see the driver get in that SUV, uh, I got to go because that's our ride home. And, um, Steve kind of leaned over and said, listen, uh, if you, if that SUV leaves without you, I will get you home. Don't worry about that. You, we will get you home. You, you do not have to worry about that. And, you know, that was 10 years ago. And I remember that. I just remember the kind of guy that, uh, that Steve was, and he, he looked out for us and, and I appreciate that. So, um, I talked to Steve and Fox 29. I talked to Mike Jarek. Uh, he was in the studio with Chanel Jones. They were hosting um, Good Day Philadelphia at the time. So I, I spoke to uh, Mike and Chanel in the studio while Steve conducted the interview there. Then we went and spoke to the other networks, um, you know, spoke to everybody. Uh, at one point, um, Steve came over and said that um, Fox News wanted to uh wanted to talk to us so i did an interview uh with fox news um that was pretty cool because chris jericho was on there so um that was uh that was pretty cool and then when i was done with all the interviews uh we went back on fox 29 and uh, again we spoke with uh, steve and um mike jarek and chanel jones and uh then that was done and the the suv was nice enough to wait for us and we got in the SUV. Now, now there's something very important that I want everybody to know. This first day of interviews, um, if you go back and you watch that stuff, I give credit to the police because um, I, I always, like I said, I have respect for law enforcement. I have law enforcement in my family, retired law enforcement. I have friends who are law enforcement, and I know what their job entails. I mean, uh, I, I always say when you go to work every day and you know, there's a chance you're not going to come home, uh, that takes balls and you know, they have my respect. Now, do I think all cops are good? Obviously I don't, but, um, I'd like to think that the majority of law enforcement are good people. The way I usually break it down and some people think I'm fucking crazy, but I'd say there's five to 10% of law enforcement that want to really be heroes like they eat sleep and breathe the job and they want to be that guy or that lady who is a, seriously a hero and i think there's five to ten percent of cops who are just absolute scumbags don't give a shit they just and it's not even that they don't really care they're just bad people and then i think there's that 80 to 85 percent that are good people that go to work. They do their job. If shit happens, they'll handle it. They just want to get their paycheck and get their pension and that's it. And I think that you can break down most jobs that way. You're going to always have a small percentage at the top that go above and beyond. You're going to have that small percentage at the bottom that are absolutely useless. But I think most people fall in that middle group. 
and I don't just think it's law enforcement. I think it's, I think you can do it with any industry. Now, obviously the differences in law enforcement, there are lives on the line. So you really would like that bottom part to be a lot smaller than my estimation. And ideally you'd like that top part to be a lot bigger. But I think if you live in the real world, you know, and I'm not even sure the world we live in right now is the real world. Uh, these, these cops, they're, uh, they're really working from behind the eight ball now, but I would give credit to the police every time they, you know, call me a hero, this and that, I would always say, look, the police are heroes, firemen are heroes, you know, uh, uh, paramedics, because I honestly feel that way. If, if you're in a position to save a life, um, or stop someone from hurting someone, um, you know, like it's just, it doesn't have to be say anything with a spree killer. It could be a, a firefighter. Uh, putting out a fire and saving lives that way or a paramedic arriving on the scene and administering emergency help and saving a life. Like, I just think those are, those people are heroes. I mean, I, I think teachers are heroes. I, I think uh, there are so many occupations where people are heroes. I just think it's easy to say, you know, police and firemen and, and paramedics and stuff. And, and I do feel that way. Now, do I think Terrence Howell is a hero? No, I think he's garbage. Do I think Tamara Taylor is a hero? No, I think she's garbage. Um, so when I said that, I wasn't referring to them, but I, but I did say it, and I've had people question me on that. Well, you sued the city, but here you are on camera saying that you think police are heroes, and I absolutely, I own that, 100%. Listen, especially nowadays with what the police have to endure, I mean, you're not just battling crime. You're battling a reputation that has been created and you have to overcome that. You can't just go and do your job anymore. So um, I own what I said back in the day. I never denied it. And uh, that's what I will say. If anyone goes back and watches those interviews, I absolutely 100% said that police are heroes. And I absolutely 100% said that firemen are heroes and paramedics are heroes. And I still believe that to this day the two pieces of human garbage that are on the train with me. No, they absolutely are not heroes, but it's important that I bring that up. So, you know, that I'm not backpedaling at all. So we, uh, we bid Mike, um, Mike, well, we bid, uh, Mike and Chanel adieu. We bid Steve adieu. We get in the SUV and now I am now everything is starting to catch up with me. I, I feel it. Uh, we're in this nice, big, comfortable SUV. I really haven't had time to relax. I've had two nights to try to sleep since the incident, but I'm not sleeping well. So it's now catching up to me. So we get in the SUV and it literally just collapse. And I'm just like, I got to rest when we get back to my mom's. And, you know, Andrea goes, look, just if anyone else calls, you know, you don't have to do anything. And I go, I know, but everyone, you know, they all have a job to do. It's a new story. And she goes, I know, but you got to make sure you rest. And I go, well, we'll just play it by ear. But honestly, I, I, I know I turned to her and I'm like, you know what? Cause now what happens is my phone's ringing and, and I'm not picking it up, but people are leaving voicemail. And it's, it's all these people from news agencies in New York city that say, Hey, you're in New York city. Can we, can you come to our studio? Um, can we interview you? Uh, I know it's close to lunchtime. Maybe you could come by after lunch. 
And as I'm listening to these, I just said to her, I'm like, there's no fucking way I'm coming back into the city today. Um, I said, once we get home, maybe I could lie down for an hour. And then I'm more than happy to do anything over the phone. But at that point, I was just really tired. And I said, there's no fucking way I'm coming back to New York City. So they drive us back to Long Island, bring us to my mom's house. We get back and Andrea says, do you mind if I go upstairs to lie down? And I said, no, I'm going to veg out down here right on the couch. And she went upstairs. I think she uh, lied down. Well, I know she lied down. She lied down. She took a nap. I basically sat on the couch. I put my head back and just started going in and out, you know, nodding in and out. Phone every now and then would would go off. I I wasn't going to listen. I was going to listen to all the voicemails and everything all at once. I wasn't going to do it every time it buzzed in because remember I said, I'm not going back to the city. Then I get a text and on my flip phone, the, uh, texts always came in. Um, the text, the text of the texts were always white. Now, all of a sudden I get a text and the text is red, which I had never seen before. And I guess that's what happened when someone sent the text and flagged it urgent. Again, I'm just a regular guy. I never got an urgent text before. So I was like, oh, this is red. What's up with this? And it was a text from someone at Fox 5 here in New York. And the the text was very simple. Dana White wants to meet you. Please call me back. And I go, what? Dana White wants to meet me. So I'm like, all right. So in my head, I'm going, all right, that's amazing. Dana White's in Vegas. So I don't know. Is he coming to New York at some point? We'll, we'll meet up there sometime. Like, okay, whatever. So yeah. Um, look, I, I make no bones about it. I know a lot of people don't really care for Dana and I don't agree with everything he's ever done. Uh, but I, 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 I'm, I'm a fan and I, I love what, what uh, Dana did and the Fertitas did when they purchased the UFC and they brought it to heights that nobody ever could imagine. So yeah, I'm a fan of Dana White. So when I get a text message that says Dana White wants to meet me, that kind of takes priority over everything else. And um, so I call back and basically um, the guy on the other end says, so here's the deal. I'm in touch with uh, a representative for the UFC. Um, Dana White wants to meet you tonight in New York. Uh, Dana White wants to meet you. Uh, would you be up for meeting him? And I said, yeah, of course I, I would love to. I said, but he's in Vegas. When do you want to set this up? He goes, no, uh, he's actually here in New York. He wants to meet you tonight. Uh, I just need to know if you're interested. I'm going to call back, um, the contact, which I found out later was Jim Byrne. Uh, I'm going to call back the contact and we'll set it up. I just need to know if you're interested. And I was like, yeah, are you kidding me? Of course I'm interested. Uh, they go, perfect. We'll call you back. Don't mention it to anybody though. Uh, because we're not telling anybody. So just keep it quiet for now. Perfect. Okay. Hang up. Now I'm lying there. And as tired as I am, I just got a phone call from channel five saying that, uh, Dana white wants to meet me. So now can I really relax? No. Um, and even though now in, in 2021, I don't really watch too much MMA anymore. Uh, back in 2011, I watched every second that I could. So this was a pretty big deal to me. So it, it didn't take too long. And, um, guy called me back and he goes, okay, here's the deal. Um, we're gonna send a, uh, a card to pick you up. Uh, you could bring your wife. 
and uh, we're going to take you to the Peninsula Hotel tonight. You're going to meet Dana White. We're going to have a camera crew there. Uh, but we don't want anybody to know because uh, if word gets out, then we won't be the only ones there. So uh, it's going to be an exclusive thing with us. So we just ask that you don't tell anybody and uh, we'll handle the rest. All you have to do is get in the uh, get in the car uh, at your house. We'll bring you to the city and then you just need to you just need to be there. And do you have any objections to us sending a camera crew and a recorder? And I was like, a, a recorder, a reporter. And I was like, no, hell no, of course not. Okay, perfect. Um, we're going to pick you up at such and such a time. Just make sure you're ready. Okay, no problem. So I remember at this point, now keep in mind, what did I say to Andrea on the way home? I said, there is no fucking way we're going back to New York tonight. So I... <laughs> I think it was Joey. It might have been Dom. I don't remember. Actually, this I I should actually go back and check in the in the book. Um, I go, hey, uh, when you go upstairs, wake up mom and tell her that we're going back to New York City tonight. And they didn't know what we were talking about, what I was talking about. They go, okay, no problem. So they go upstairs. They wake up Andrea, and she comes down the stairs, you know, and she's like, "What? We, I thought we weren't going back to New York City." And I go, well, I got a message. I got a text followed by a phone call that Dana White wants to meet me. So, yeah, we're going back to the city tonight. And she's like, what? No way. And it was like, holy fuck. So, yeah. So, okay. So, I call back uh, a few of the people who had left me messages. Some of them really wanted me in person and I couldn't do it. So, they either said, uh, okay, thanks anyway. Or we did, um, we did an interview over the phone. Uh, on the way to the Peninsula Hotel, I actually did an interview on the phone. Um, Jesus, I can't. Uh, you know, my memory's going. Um, he's on Court TV now. I think he has a show. Oh, uh, Vinny, Vinny, Vinny Politan. I think uh, I think that's his name. Did an interview with him for his show. Um, and then it was kind of like, just relax and fuck, we're going to meet Dana White. Holy shit, right? <laughs> so... What how this came about was every uh, every interview that I did, I basically you know they asked me what happened and I mentioned how um, I tried to do a single leg takedown and how I had no training and how I watched UFC since day one and what every interview it was UFC 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 and how it was explained to me was. Uh, Dana was in a meeting with, with a bunch of other UFC people and everyone's phone started to go off. And I guess nobody wanted to check their phone in the middle of the meeting, but it got to the point where they didn't have a choice. And basically everyone's phone was saying the same thing. There's a guy here in New York that stopped it. I guess they, everyone probably mistakenly calls him a serial killer, uh, stopped a serial killer and he keeps mentioning UFC. So it got to the point where they couldn't deny the texts or the phone calls anymore. And uh, when he got wind of that, he definitely wanted to uh, to meet me, which is still uh, crazy for me to even say out loud. But uh, we got in the truck and uh, like I said, we drove in and we get out of the car. And Jim Byrne, who I uh, still call a friend to this day, one of the nicest people I've ever met, uh, he escorts us into the hotel uh, I have never been to the Peninsula Hotel before that. It's the kind of hotel that I'd probably be afraid to walk past looking like I look. It'd probably have me arrested, but a uh, real fancy hotel, really, really nice hotel. And um, so Jim brings us in the room and there is um, a photographer there 
and he's taking some pictures of us. And um, basically, I'm just like, okay, whatever, whatever you guys need, I'm here, you know. And uh, so Jim says, basically, what's going to happen is uh, Fox Five's, you know, they're here, and Dane is going to come down. Just you know, whatever, just be you. Have a conversation with them. They're gonna, they're gonna film it, and I'm sure the uh, reporter is going to ask you a few questions, and and that's it. And, uh, so they gave, um, they gave me a t-shirt. Um, they gave my wife a limited edition coach bag. I think only 100 were made and they said they usually give them out to like celebrities or high profile people. And here they are giving one to Andrea, which still has, um, you know, I guess it's a pretty big deal. I don't, I don't really know pocketbooks, but, uh, I know coach is a, is a pretty big name. So that was pretty amazing. And I was just like, this is amazing. And I remember, um, I remember saying to Jim, I was like, wow, Jim, this is really nice. You guys, this is, uh, this is amazing. Thank you very much. And he got this big smile on his face and I'll never forget it. He goes, brother, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I was like, all right. I like the way that sounds. And, uh, so anyway, a couple of minutes later, Dana comes down and he's unbelievable. He's just unbelievably nice and really cool down the earth guy. And, um, we start talking and, you know, he's asking me what happened and I'm telling him what happened. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's weird. Cause you figure this is a guy that's probably on the phone 24 hours a day, setting things up. He's in important meetings and everything. And now nothing else matters to him, except the words that are coming out of my mouth. It, it wasn't like I'm talking to him and I can tell he's not paying attention. I mean, he's riveted to everything I say. And, um, one of the things they gave me was um, the Octagon book. It had been recently released. And uh, so he signed that up for me. And I always bring this up because it's uh, it's one of the funnier moments of the night. So as he's signing the book for me, uh, you know, Dana is a lightning rod. So he has people that love him. He has people that hate him. And I'm, I have no qualms about saying I love the guy. But I did give him grief. And I had said, hey, can I, can I give you grief about something? So he started laughing. And he goes, yeah, go ahead. Shoot. So I go, I just want you to know that you released my favorite fighter and I'm not happy about it. So he goes, who's your favorite fighter? And I said, oh, Keith Jardine. And he goes, man, I love Keith. And, uh, you know, it was a tough decision, but hopefully he, you know, he has a couple of fights and we bring him back and everything. He goes, but he's one of the guys I really like and I really hated to let him go, but it was a business decision. But that's really cool that he's your favorite fighter. And I'm like, yeah, I love him and everything. He goes, but he goes, look, I I hope to have him back one day. So hopefully... uh, gets a couple of wins under his belt and that, but I think, I think, uh, I'm not, I think he respected me, but I think he, I, even he would probably admit it was funny because here he is meeting this guy that's in the papers and I'm giving him shit about releasing Keith Jardine, but, um, couldn't, couldn't have been cooler. And he basically says, well, you know, we have UFC 128 coming up in Newark and, uh, we want, uh, your family to be our guest. <sighs> so anything that involves my family it always kind of gets to me and this is weird because i never really get emotional at this point i don't know why maybe i'm just tired i don't know but he he said he yeah he want uh he we want you to be our guests uh you bring your wife you bring your kids and uh you're gonna sit with me at my table and i was like like you just have to watch the video like i think my eyes bugged out of my head i couldn't believe it and he goes, don't worry, we'll be in touch. We'll set everything up, but you're, you're coming, 
you're coming. You know, you guys are coming. We're going to take care of you. I was like, holy shit. Like, wow. And then he says, well, listen, you know, tonight, uh, so this was the Monday, so it was Valentine's Day. And he said, so it's Valentine's Day. I don't know if you guys any, had any plans, but we'd like to get you guys a room for the night in this hotel. We'd treat you to dinner, give you the room. And, um, you know, it's on us and it's our just, you know, gift, a gift to you. And I said, look, um, definitely we'll accept the dinner. Thank you very much. Uh, but I really just want to get home and be with my entire family. Um, I know it's Valentine's Day, but I haven't seen my kids too much lately. And I'd really just like to go home and, and you know, be with my wife and my kids and everything. So he's like, oh, I totally get it. I understand that. But, you know, like I said, hey, uh, definitely up for the meal. And it was probably quite the scene. We're in this fancy restaurant, in this fancy hotel. And like I said, now it's Monday night. The whole thing happened Saturday morning. I got stitches and staples everywhere in my head and my face. Um, I got the black eye still. And I'm sitting here and <laughs> I must have looked like a freak show compared to everyone else that's in that restaurant. And I, I knew people were staring at me. And I, again, I don't. Just like I don't blame the people in the subway for not jumping in during the fight, I definitely don't blame the people for staring at I probably would have taken a glance or two at myself if I was at another table. But everyone was so nice. The hostess was unbelievable. Um, she just made small talk with us. She found out we had two kids, and she put together these gift bags um, with, with different stuff in it for Joey and Dom, and it was just really great. So... Um, we left, we said goodbye to Jim and he said, uh, you know, he took our information. He's like, all right, we're going to be in touch. And that's that. So the, I mean, it was, it was an amazing dinner. Everyone was so great. We go back home and, um, go back to my mom's and that's that. So I may have done another interview or two on Tuesday, uh, that I don't really remember, uh, nothing of consequence, let's say, um, and then it was Thursday, I think we were, uh, they had called me, the the assistant DA, and said, we need you to come down, I think it was thir Thursday or Friday, um, we need you to come down and testify before a grand jury to indict Maxim Gelman. So I said, yeah, no problem. So uh, Andrea, myself, and my sister, uh, my sister drives us in. I think she had to do something actually. So while I was uh, while I was waiting to testify, Andrea went with my sister, uh, did whatever they had to do, and um, I'm there. And first things first, I go into the ADA's office, and this is where it kind of, you know, like when everything went down the way it did, everything that like I, when I talk about the cops and how they hid and they didn't come out, that was all behind me. Um, literally behind me. It wasn't that I put it past me. It was literally behind me. And I explained to you how it happened. And that's exactly how it happened. But it just, things didn't add up to me. You know, it didn't really, like, why? You know, my question was why. And um, when I was in with the assistant DA, he basically said, well, tell me what happened. And um, he goes, yeah. He goes, okay, so just, go with the truth and everything. And he mentioned about how the officer, and I, I don't, you know, again, it's in my book. I really should have read it. Um, but he said something to me that really caught me off guard. Like it was almost an admission that he didn't do anything, that the cop didn't do anything, uh, that he didn't come out right away. 
And I was like, so, so they know, like, they know what happened. Like, okay, so, all okay. right. But it was like one of those light bulb moments. And uh, that was when I saw one of the pictures of the back of my head before I was stitched up and stapled. And um, picture ho those Halloween masks that go over your head and the bottom of the mask where the neck is, it kind of it just has like flappy skin that you tuck into your shirt. Um, so the deepest wound on my head, on the back of my head, is on the right side. And when they sewed me up, it basically became more along the lines of a horizontal diagonal wound but when they when he cut me it basically went straight up and down so it basically looked like a straight line with the skin flapping on either side and that was that was tough to see and i'm glad that nobody came with me i did i'm glad that nobody in my family had to see that picture um to be honest with you i'd love to get a copy of it i don't know if they'd ever release that to me but I, i'm glad nobody in my family saw that picture so then we make our way downstairs to um to where the um I, I guess it's technically a court um but it was basically a big room and I sat behind a desk and the grand jury was in front of me and there were a lot of people there I don't know I mean were there 30 40 50 people I I really don't know but there were a lot of people and uh basically I told them what happened and the uh, ADA passed around photos and I remember watching the people looking at the pictures from like they're the guy next to them has the photo. So they're looking over at the picture and I just remember seeing their face and they didn't want to look at it. So they're taking the picture in their hand, but they're looking the other way and then they're handing it off to the person next to them and turning their head again in the opposite direction because they didn't want to look at it because it was so, they were so graphic. So I remember that and everyone was great. And yeah, I got emotional um, because again, I, I still to this day can't talk about uh, parts of the story and talk about my family without getting emotional. And I got emotional that day and um, I'm not afraid to say it. So I don't remember how long I was in there for, but I know I definitely had everyone's attention. And after I was done, I didn't know if I could leave or not. So I went out. And I ended up actually sitting very close to Officer Tamara Taylor. And again, at this point, I'm still sketchy on the whole thing, everything that went down. So I wasn't really going to be an asshole. Um, so basically, she starts and she says, well, how'd it go? And I'm like, oh, it was fine. They just asked me what happened. And um, I told him and stuff. And, you know, she says, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Okay. I said, hey, you know, by the way, I said, I remember uh, hearing you talk about me when I was unconscious and she looks at me, she goes, you do. I'm like, yeah, I remember you calling me likely. And she just got this look on her face and she goes, you remember that? And I said, I remember everything. I said, I, I never completely lost consciousness at all. I said, I remember everything. She had no idea that a, I had even heard her say it and B that I even remembered it. But I remember telling her that and her expression changed. And I sat there for maybe five more minutes, maybe even not that long. And Howell was inside and I was like, all right, well, no one's saying anything to me. I think I'm done. So I texted Andrea and I said, I'm done. And they said, okay, we'll meet us over here. I go out and, um, I meet them and we go home. So I want to say that was Friday. Um, and then Saturday we left or it was Thursday and Friday we left. And, um, so on the way home, I did a nice interview with Mike Chiapetta, 
uh, MMA writer and he was awesome. And it was a nice long interview. You know, he basically asked me like, you know, how much time do you have? I'm like, oh, I'm driving home to Philly from New York. So I got all the time in the world. And we, we chatted for the majority of the, of the, the trip. He was awesome. And, um, you know, he wrote a really nice story and we got home and that uh, the woman I had referenced already, Kathleen, her and her daughter came and they decorated our, uh, our house with welcome home and, and stuff like that. And, um, it was nice. It was very nice to see. It was great to be home. And I had a million messages on my voicemail and, uh, it was intense, you know, but again, a few days had passed. So I called everyone back. There were some media outlets that didn't want to, um, they, they, you know, like I said, like the guy from Newsday said, look, no offense, but this is kind of yesterday's news. And I totally understood it. Um, the, the Philadelphia news outlets were more interested because I hadn't been home yet. So um, there, nobody really had an opportunity to speak to me, uh, be it on TV or radio or newspapers. So they were interested and, um, basically, uh, we got home and the next thing I know, so I'm making arrangements. The, uh, Philadelphia daily news is going to send a photographer over to take some pictures to go along with the story that they want to write with, write on me. Uh, I did a phone interview with them and, uh, now we're setting things up to go to the Fox 29 studios in a couple of days. Uh, CBS three wanted me there. NBC 10 wanted me there. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I just think everyone has a job to do. So if I'm going to be in a particular area and I can hit all these different stations, then why not? Like I, I didn't want to, obviously Fox 29 was my favorite, but, um, you know, it wasn't a big deal to me to, to do this stuff. I, I love Philadelphia and I love, I love talking to the people down there. And, um, so it was no big deal for me to, uh, to make the rounds that day. Um, so funny story about the Philadelphia Daily News. So I do the interview. Uh, I believe the writer's name was Will Bunch. And uh, I do the interview with him. And he basically says, so you took the pictures with the photographer. Um, there's a chance you could be on the cover. I honestly don't know. I guess we they make the decision after they get all the news stories that day. So your picture's definitely going to be in the paper. You might be on the cover, but I honestly don't know. I said, no problem. I don't need to be on the cover. Trust me, you probably sell more papers if I'm not on the cover. Um, but whatever, it's fine. I just appreciate your interest. No problem. So next day I get up, put on my shoes. First place I want to go. I missed it like crazy. It was Wawa. I needed to go. I needed to get my Wawa coffee. I needed to get my Sizzlies. And I go and I look and on the front page of the paper is yours truly. And uh, that was uh, pretty surreal, to be honest with you. And it was even more surreal when you're in a Wawa in the morning and there's a ton of people in there and they're buying the newspaper that you're on the front cover. And now they notice and they're doing the look at the paper and they're looking at you and they look at the paper and they're looking at you and they notice that you're the guy that's on the front page of the paper. Um but it was cool. I mean, that was our local Wawa. So I knew everybody that worked there and they were all excited. It was really, you know, it was fun. You know, I, I love Philadelphia and that crew that worked at that Wawa, which unfortunately is not open anymore. They were awesome. They were so cool to me. We'd always talk sports when I went in there. We'd, we'd give each other, uh, you know, we, we'd mess with each other because they're obviously Philadelphia fans and they knew that I was an Islanders fan and a Buffalo Bills fan, a Braves fan. 
So we would always go back and forth, but they were great. And all the people there were so excited that I was in the paper and they were like, Oh my God, we saw the paper. We we're hoping you're going to come in today. And it was just really cool. So I did what I always do. I buy my breakfast. I buy my coffee. I buy my paper. I go home. Now Andrea gets up and, uh, I didn't say anything to her and I just, you know, papers downstairs and she wasn't one to really read the paper. But she asked me, she goes, uh, is the article in the paper? I said, yeah. I said, go take a look. So she looks and she goes, you're on the cover. And I'm like, yeah, I know. She's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. She goes, how many copies did you buy? So I said, I bought one. And she goes, why would you only buy one copy? I said, well, how many copies of the paper do I buy every day? I, got, I buy one copy every day. She goes, but you're not on the cover every day. And I go, yeah, I know, but it's not a big deal. And I just bought one. And she goes, well, what about your mom? What about my mom? What about your dad? And I said, yeah, you're right. So then she's like, oh, I can't, I can't leave you to do anything. So then she went out and she bought like 10 copies or whatever it is. And, uh, she was pumped and the boys were pumped. And, you know, that's the coolest part of the story is just how, you know, how excited my kids were, you know, and, uh, that was cool. And they were happy. Their dad was in the front page of the paper. I also ended up being on the front page of the Northeast times, which is a the local paper, uh, in the different sections of Philadelphia, I think they have their own paper, sort of like here on Long Island with the Herald. Um, so they came out and did an interview with me. I ended up being on the front page of the Northeast Times too. Um, but that was really cool. And, um, you know, then, uh, God, you know, I hope you guys aren't getting bored with the story. I, I'm, I'm going into so many details. And if you are, I apologize. I, I just feel like it's very important that the entire story gets out there. And I feel like I, I haven't even gotten to the important stuff yet. Well, obviously the subway stuff is, is important, but I almost feel like I haven't gotten to the important stuff yet. I can't even imagine how many hours this episode is going to be. So if you're not, if you're hanging in there with me, I really appreciate it. If you bailed a long time ago, well, obviously if you bailed a long time ago, you're not hearing this, but I, I hope that, um, I hope that I'm at least holding your interest. So uh, the next week is when uh, we went to uh, went to Center City, Philadelphia. Uh, we went to Fox 29 Studios. They treated us like royalty. Um, they found out that uh, Dominic loved the show House. They got him a house poster. Um, Joey, they got Joey, uh, I think a Deshaun Jackson jersey. Um, Swoop, I think is his name. The Eagles mascot was there. And uh, they invited the Eagles cheerleaders, which I said were probably they were probably there for Mike Jarek. Uh, he got a laugh out of that. And, um, you know, Mike was amazing. Chanel was amazing. Uh, everybody that was there was so great at, at Fox. They were they were just tremendous. And they man, they were good people. It really was like just um, talking to your friends. And if I'm not mistaken, that was the first time that I had mentioned in public about Alfred Douglas, because I had actually spoken to him a day or so before on the phone. So, uh, that was an amazing phone call. It's not often that you get to talk to the person that you believe saved your life. And, um, when I found out Alfred's story that day, so I had already mentioned how I, I shouldn't have been in New York that early because originally my shift wasn't supposed to start. I shouldn't have been on the three train if I had only stayed on the platform I had originally gone on. But I did switch and I ended up on that train. So I'm on a train that I shouldn't be on at a time that I shouldn't be in the city. And Alfred is a construction worker and he wasn't even working that day. He was just going to check on the project. 
And he ends up being on the train with me, ultimately, in my opinion, saving my life. And uh, when you get to speak to someone like that, who you look at as your guardian angel, it's a pretty amazing experience. And uh, that uh, that particular uh, time, that was the first interview I had done after finding out Alfred's name. So um, that was pretty amazing. I got to mention Alfred on the air. And um, it was always important for me to mention him because nobody else did. I found out later that uh, after I was taken off the subway, the uh, police basically commandeered everybody there and they interviewed everybody for hours, including uh, Alfred. And um, never once did they ever mention, well, like I said, they didn't mention me. They definitely didn't mention any role that uh, Alfred played. And like I said, he was the one that helped Terrence Howell handcuff Maxim Gelman. I know that they want you to think it was Marcelo Razzo, but uh, it wasn't. It was uh, Alfred Douglas. So that was the first time I had, I was able to mention Alfred. And, um, you know, they gave us a whole bunch of stuff and it was really cool. And it was it really was like hanging out with friends, uh, only that they were filming it and putting it on TV. Uh, we left Fox 29. We went to um, KYW, I think, 3, the, the CBS affiliate down there. And um, I did an interview with them. And they were awesome, too. They were funny. They, I, I admit they were funny because now we're walking into their studios and we have bags full of stuff from Fox 29. And they look and they said, you know, we don't have anything for you guys that uh, you could take home. We don't have goodie bags like you got over at Fox. And I was like, oh, that's cool, man. No, no problem there. And we did the interview and um, we didn't drive in that day. Fox 29 got us a car and uh they got us to uh, Channel 3. So I call NBC10 and I say, okay, we're we're over at Channel 3. Uh, do you have a car to pick us up? And they go, no. I said, well, we didn't drive in today. So they go, well, if you want to get a cab, get a cab and, you know, come on over. And I said, yeah, I wasn't, like, I wasn't put out by it, but I'm thinking, well, you're the one that wants us here. Like, Fox sent a car for us. Um, Good Morning America sent a car for us. Like, I don't know, should if I'm going to call a cab and I'm paying for it, I'm just going to go home. Like, you know, I'm tired. We were up early again today. And, um, they were just like, yeah, we're, we don't, we're not going to send the car. So I'm like, okay, no problem. And I called the cab and we got in the cab and we went home. And Dominic, who was seven at the time was beside himself because he wanted to be on TV again. So we were actually talking about this the other night and, uh, he was hysterical because he had been on TV twice that day. Now he wanted to be on TV a third time, but uh, it was not in the cards. And we went home, and I had a doctor's appointment that night, and um, went to the doctor. Uh, if you're in the Northeast Philadelphia area and you need a doctor, I cannot recommend Dr. Alan Wool enough. The man is amazing. He's one of those people that was born to do what he's doing. Uh He's the best, absolute best. So that was my follow-up. He was the first time I had seen him, and he was the one that was going to take care of me from here on out. I could have gone back to Bellevue for uh, the aftercare stuff, but, you know, he was more than capable of doing it. He, he He took care of me. So he got my reports from Bellevue, and he was furious, furious when he looked at them. And he said, they didn't test you for HIV. They didn't test you for AIDS. They didn't test you for hepatitis C. 
And I was like, oh, I figured they would have done that. It's not like they didn't have enough blood, you know. And uh, he's like, oh, all right. He goes, oh, I'm going to do all this. I'm going to take. He goes, I can't believe they didn't test you for this stuff. And he had me tested for the stuff, and uh, I was clean on all counts because the biggest thing was the knife that uh, Gelman used to bludgeon me was the knife that he used to kill the other, you know, three people and to uh, carjack people and and stab them and slice them. So. There was plenty of blood on that knife when he, you know, punctured me, when he stabbed me. There was a lot of different people's blood on that knife. When I had originally seen it, I thought it was just dirty. But then you find out, no, that's uh, that's the, that's blood. So uh, it wasn't that he was being sanitary in between his murders. Uh, whatever blood was on it was staying there. So um, Dr. Wool had me tested. I came back clean. And then I was going to go... Uh, I was going to see him again in a, in a week or so. He's going to take out the, uh, the staples. Well, we drive home that night and we pull into the driveway and there's 10, 12, 15 boxes of, I don't know what, but they're decent sized boxes. And, um, I get out and we're like, what is this stuff? And I look at the label and it says Zufa. And Zufa, uh, I guess not anymore. You know, they're owned by that guy from Entourage, I guess, but uh, the agency. But that was the parent company of the UFC. So I had had a discussion with uh, Dana's assistant and she had asked me, what size are you? What size is your wife, your kids, everything? So I figured they were going to send us something. I didn't. What I didn't know was they were basically going to send us one of everything from the UFC online store. And really, it sounds a little far-fetched, but, I mean, it was insane. So we bring in all the boxes. The kids are like, oh, my God, it's like Christmas in February. And they couldn't believe I mean, I could. I say the kids were excited. Uh, Andrea and I were excited, too. Um, just amazing. I mean, they really... I mean, thousands of dollars worth of merchandise and, and it didn't have to be done. They, they, I got a t-shirt that night at the hotel. Andrea got a bag. I got a book. Like I was on cloud nine just from that stuff. And now we're bringing in box after box after box of merchandise. And uh, dude, I mean, there was everything in there. There were clothes, there were t-shirts, there were duffel bags, there were sweatshirts, there were sweatpants. Um, there was, uh, you know, um, trunks, you know, if to train in, uh, winter jackets, like literally I say, it seemed like they sent us one of everything because that's exactly what it seemed like. And it was phenomenal. Like just, I was speechless. Uh, the, you know, I, I, there are times like this where I, I remember stuff that, people did for us and um it's it's it does leave me speechless because um in in the coming weeks what would happen is new york city would turn its back on me and screw me and you get people like the ufc that look out for you and people like the new york islanders and the philadelphia flyers and glory kickboxing and um keith jardine and his manager and um just a bunch of people um and it's humbling because 
none of these people have to do a damn thing for you. And they're doing it because you're someone at the time that they obviously know is going through a hard time. And they, if, if them reaching out is something that will make me cope or make my wife cope or my kids cope. I mean, it was, it was just phenomenal. And um, that night was really just the beginning of a, a bunch of things that happened after that. So um, what what else can I say about that other than uh, we were just stunned and um, more was to come, that's for sure. The way I've been recording this episode is uh, right now it's Sunday morning. I recorded a, a good chunk of this episode yesterday, uh, Saturday, in three parts. And as I looked over the files and I was like, wow, that's a lot of uh, a lot of material there. And I, I guess the issue is once I get to talking about this, it could go in so many different directions. And I know that uh, maybe some of you people were only interested in the um, in the actual incident or the subsequent court nonsense. And uh, and that's fine. I, to me, that's the nuts and bolts of the story. Uh, but there's other stuff that I threw in there. And so I guess when I'm done recording this portion, hopefully this will take us to the end here that I'll decide whether this is going to be a, a one episode or a two episode. And if it's a two episode, um, it'll be part one released on Monday, part two released on Tuesday. It won't be where I'll I'll, I'll stretch it out a week. I'll, I'll just release them on back to back days. Um it's probably a little less daunting for you to look at an episode being two hours and another episode being two hours and for you to pop on here on Monday and see a four plus hour episode. So um, I'm going to pick up where I left off yesterday. And I believe that was after uh, Andrea and I and the boys got home from the doctor and we had all the stuff in the driveway from the UFC. So um, I guess the, uh, the, the next most important aspect of the story was um just i was out of work for a few weeks and i will say lincoln center my employer current employer and employer at the time was they lincoln center was unbelievable to me they understood what i went through and i i think it wasn't so much that it was strictly the physical side it was also the psychological side they were uh behind me uh 100 so I was in touch with my, my boss, Pete, you know, maybe not daily, but every other day. And I got to the point where I was sitting at home and I was recovering. And at one point, uh, I think he called me and he said, do you have any idea when you're going to come back? And, and I remember saying, I'm actually thinking that maybe I should try to give it a go next week, which was fine. You know, there, there was no urgency on their part to get me back. They wanted me to be a hundred percent. And, um, I think it was just, I, I didn't want to sort of waste away at home. I wanted to try to get back on the horse and try to get things back to a sense of normalcy. So, uh, I remember the following week I went back to work. I went back one day and listen, there are people out there, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like Dean, he's a construction worker. I mean, he breaks his ass every day when he goes to work and, and that's like real men stuff. And, uh, I work in a box office and, uh, it's probably more brain stuff and, and repetition stuff. So it's not that I went back to work and, uh, Pete's telling me, yeah, take that scaffold over there and move it here and, you know, build that house. It wasn't anything like that. But, um, even after I was at work, maybe a few hours and he said, go home, 
you know, he's like, go home. And I go, I don't know if I'm ready to be back. And, it, and at that point, it wasn't anything psychological. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't that, oh, I'm back in the city. I'm having these bad memories. It was physical, completely physical. And, um, he's like, just go home. And, uh, he goes, well, you know, try, you know, take the rest of the week and we'll try again next week. And, and it helped. I took the rest of the week off and, um, we, I came back the following week and my first day back, the daily news was there. They covered my return to work. It was the same, uh, reporter that covered the story that broke the story. I guess it broke the truth, not the nonsense that New York city and the NYPD were putting out there. Uh, so she was there. She did. Uh, she did an interview. They took some pictures, and uh, it was just a regular day back at work. And I had, um, you know, I, I, I didn't have the energy that I normally have. But like I said, uh, box office work is more brain stuff than uh, than physical stuff. But it worked out, and uh, I got through the day. And uh, when work was over, I look at my watch and I say, okay, uh, I have X amount of time before I have to get the train, and. Uh, I uh, I don't remember if I made the phone call or if the phone call came into me. It was a buddy of mine, and I had time to kill. So if you're familiar with Lincoln Center, if you're looking at um, the main, well, if you're looking at the Lincoln Center campus, uh, if you're if you're facing it, you're facing front, and you're looking at the Metropolitan Opera. Uh, to your right is David Geffen Hall, which at the time was Avery Fisher Hall. That's where I work. To the left is the uh david coke theater that's where the ballet is and right in the middle is this big fountain and people love the fountain and tourists come and they take pictures around it and everything and i had time to kill so i'm on the phone with my buddy and uh we're just talking and all of a sudden i go hey you're not going to believe this and he goes what and i go there's someone following me and he's like come on and i'm like dude there i'm walking around the fountain and someone is following me i go let me call you back so he hangs up. I keep the phone in my ear like I'm still on the phone and I slow my pace and the person that's following me doesn't slow his. And just as he gets sort of close to me, I turn around really quick and I'm like, can I help you? And he goes, well, he goes, hey, hey, hey I'm not uh, I'm not looking for trouble. Um, and uh, he goes, I didn't mean to startle you or anything. And I'm like, what's up? And uh, he it's funny to say this. He's like, you're Joe, right? And I was like, yep. And it, the funny part is because even though it was several weeks after the fact, um, I still had the scars. At this point, uh, Dr. Wall had taken out the staples and uh, the stitches were out. But the scars were still pretty fresh. We're, we're talking a few weeks after. So um, so it was the it was the obligatory you're Joe, right? But it was obvious because no one else is walking around looking like that. But and I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, hey, um, do you have a few minutes to talk? And I said, sure. So he said, um, I was on the grand jury when you testified to indict Maxim Gelman. And I said, well, how do I know that you're telling the truth? Because who knows? Like, I don't know. I don't know what this guy is about. So I just said, well, how do I know you were there? And he goes, um, well, what can I say to prove it? I'm like, I don't know. You tell me. Because at that point, I, I didn't want to go, well, tell me about this or tell me about this. And then maybe the guy's just a good guesser, you know? And he goes, all right. Um, I remember, and he, he said probably a few things that I had said. And he goes, I remember when uh, the ADA were, that was passing the photos around. He goes, a lot of people wouldn't look at them. And he basically described what I had described, how people were passing them around while they weren't looking at them. And I said, okay, so you're legit. So I said, what's up? And he said, well, he goes, I got to tell you, um, after you testified, he goes, it was, he goes, you just, your testimony was unbelievable. You just reached 
all of us. And there was no question after your testimony that uh, Gelman was going to be indicted. He goes, that was a slam dunk. No, there was no question about it. He said, but uh, he goes, you know what I did? He goes, after after that, he goes, that night I went home and I was watching your uh, stuff on YouTube. He goes, a lot of the interviews that you had done. And he goes, I came here to tell you, he said, you're giving the police way too much credit. And I said what I always say. It's even what I said earlier. I said, look, I have family that are cops. Uh, uh, I have friends that are cops and they have a tough job. And I, I said the usual stuff that I say because I, I said it earlier. If you have a job that you're not 100% sure that you're coming home that night, like it's something I really respect. And he goes, no, no. He goes, not the uh, he goes, not the police in general. He goes, but these two cops specifically. And I go, oh, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, after you testified, Terrence Howell testified and he's there giving his testimony and then uh, he's describing what happened and he basically comes out and says that either I forget if he said before the skirmish or when it had first started that he had he had reached to actually almost open the door like turn the handle of the door to come out and he basically just admitted that he was about to come out and get involved and he thought Maxim Gelman had a gun. So he closed the door and stayed inside. And he goes, we're all focused on his testimony. And all of a sudden he says this and we're all looking at each other going, did he just say that? Did I just hear him right? Did, did he really just say that? Uh, and he goes, you know, we went from being focused on him to everyone looking at each other going, you know, did I hear that right? And uh, so he finishes up his testimony. He leaves the room and he goes, basically, we all converge on the ADA and go, uh, can we bring him up on charges? Uh, this guy basically just admitted that he didn't do his job and left a, a train full of passengers, civilians, uh, unarmed civilians uh, in the same area as a spree killer. And um, and he basically saved himself. And he goes, we were he goes, we were pissed. We're, we all live in New York. We're all taxpayers. And we basically were saying, is this what our tax dollars are paying for? And it almost sounds like an angry mob when he said it. And uh, the ADA basically said, look, that's not what we're here for. We're here to indict Maxim Gelman. And it, it, the way he made it sound was like they didn't want to hear any of it. They were just disgusted and appalled that A, it happened, and B, he was so brazen enough to admit it. But uh, he goes, well, after, uh, he goes, personally for me, after hearing that and after watching a lot of your early interviews, I had to come and meet you. He goes, I've been up here a few times. You haven't been here. And um, he goes, so I wanted to make sure that you knew what was said. And I, to be honest with you, it was like getting attacked all over again. And um, I, I like I was just stunned. I was just stunned, you know. And then I, I know that. Uh, I basically said, look, I got to run. I got to catch a train and everything. But I, I thanked him profusely for letting me know this. And now, I, again, I was still living in Philadelphia. So now I'm going to basically have a two and a half hour commute uh, home. So I don't want to call Andrea and tell her on the phone because now she's got to sit on it for two and a half hours until I get home. So I kind of just eat it for the ride home. And, you know, I always call the family on the way home and we talk for a little bit. And then when I got home, I said, look, uh, uh, we got to talk and I told her what happened and naturally we were furious, you know, because like I said, I had my suspicions all along and uh, this sort of confirmed those. So it was really just, um, 
well, I got to get a lawyer because these are people that were, like I said earlier, when Tamara Taylor called me likely, they didn't even blink thinking about, well, you know, he'll die. And uh, they already put out the bullshit story that they tried to, they tried to put out there. And, uh, you know, just knowing that it really wasn't a priority for him to um, get out there and stop what's going on, basically arrest the guy he was down there to arrest. I guess it didn't matter if he killed more people as long as he got the collar at some point, I guess is really what, what I'm trying to say. I guess that was the mindset. I honestly don't know, but that's what I would say to make sense. So uh, there was no question. I wanted to pursue uh, legal action. So um, I got a number of a lawyer from a friend here on Long Island. I call him the next day. And we we chat, and he goes, absolutely. Uh, when can you come up here? Uh, we'll we'll come to my office. We'll talk, and we'll we'll set something up. And so I don't remember. It was probably the next day, a couple of days later. Uh, drive up to Long Island, and I meet him. And I kind of his name's Ed, and he just has this way about him, uh, confidence about him. I guess if you don't like lawyers, you might call it cockiness. But uh, I, I got an immediate, uh, I felt an immediate connection with him. And I've said over the years that I questioned my choice and it has nothing to do with Ed. Uh, Ed was as professional as it comes. I, I felt like he was aggressive, as aggressive as he could be. Um, smart, really sharp guy and everything. I have no issue at all with Ed and, and the way he went about things after everything went down the way it did, I did question myself. Was I, was I better off getting one of these ambulance chaser guys like, um, Sanford Rubenstein or these guys who, you know, the city doesn't want to deal with, and you know, they're going to make a lot of noise and they're going to be banging the pots and pans. And they're going to be running to the media, um, to try to draw attention to everything. And that's their MO. And they've been very successful doing that. I mean, uh, Rubenstein isn't the only one there's, dozen of them two dozen of them he's just one of the more high profile guys so i've always questioned would would i have been better off with someone like that and of course the answer is we'll never know um but again it had nothing to do with that ed was awesome and if i was ever in a situation again where i needed a lawyer he'd be my first phone call but i always wondered if i was better off getting one of these uh you know guys that like to create a ruckus and maybe send a message to the city right away and but it, again, it, eventually it could have just sped up their process of trying to get the case dismissed. I don't know. But uh, as far as, you know, my meeting with Ed went, it was, uh, you know, he was awesome. And we were, he goes, so tell me what happened. And I told him everything. He goes, okay, good. He goes, number one, I'm taking your case. No problem. I'm taking this case. He goes, but I want you to understand something. I'm going to tell you exactly how this is going to go down. He said, we're going to... Uh, present we're going to submit our uh complaint to the courts um he said the uh, city will answer it we'll go through the discovery phase and when we're done with discovery the city's going to make a motion to dismiss and he goes he pulls it up on a screen and um i believe it was i believe it was warren versus district of columbia a case that i've become all too familiar with and he goes this is one of the cases they're going to cite trying to dismiss your case. And um, I was like, you know, again, look, I don't, I don't know law. I don't know anything like that. And I, in my head, I'm like, well, they're going to try to dismiss the case, but there's, how could you dismiss it? There's no chance that you could dismiss this case. Um, but 
I said, but again, he's like, look, we're taking the case. We're going full steam ahead. Okay, cool. No problem. So he had to do the prep work and, um, you know, I'm sure I, you know, he interviewed me again. I told him everything that happened, went through the whole story. He puts together the complaint. It's submitted to the court. Now, um, we're going to do a press conference. Uh, Ed and I are going to do a press conference. And this was right before the UFC event. And um, I wasn't sure how people were going to react to the lawsuit. Uh, you know, I had, like I said, the media had treated me wonderfully. I had people calling me, you know, hey, we want you to do this. You know, like I said, Keith Jardine called me. He had a fight in uh, Albuquerque. Uh, so the promoter. He flew us out to his fight. Andrea and I, we were there for a couple of days. Um, you know, like I said, Dana White was going to have us at UFC 128. I had, a, uh, I think, a pretty well-known car dealership in, in New Jersey uh, call me and said, look, I know you're you're going to be sitting with Dana White. We'd love to have you up in the suite. Uh, hey, you're an Islanders fan. When the Islanders play the Devils, you know, we'd like to have you come to the game. Everyone was great. And again, all that stuff was was awesome. But you know, there are some people who don't want to look at the facts and there are some people who are just strictly pro law enforcement. Doesn't matter what the truth is. They're going to stick by their guns and that's fine. Uh, but I was concerned because the UFC and Dana White had made a pretty big deal about this and I didn't want them to, uh, not that it, whether, listen, whether they agreed with me or not, um, was inconsequential, but, uh, I didn't want to make anyone look stupid or have any ill will. And, um, my contact throughout the process after the first night was Reed Harris, who is the uh, creator of the WEC. He, uh, to me, is an MMA pioneer. He's also one of the nicest people I've ever met. Uh, and I'm happy to say to this day that Reed Harris and his lovely wife, Laura, are still good friends of mine. I consider them family. And, uh, you know, I've always said throughout this whole thing, I I've met a lot of great people. And you know, basically for a while, I was a news cycle a couple of times. And when that happens, it brings attention and people will want to help you and, and do things for you and be nice. And then eventually, you know, time goes by and they get busy, you get busy and all of a sudden that stuff stops and it's completely understandable. But there are a handful of people that have stayed in my life from, from that time. And Reed and Laura are two of those people. And they're just, um, they're the kind of people that, you're happy that you're friends with them, but you regret the fact that you didn't meet them earlier, that you wish that you had either grown up with them or you met them when you're younger and you, you, you're friends with them for two years. You wish you were friends with them for 22 years. I'm not friends with them for 10 years. I wish I was friends with them for 60 years. They're that kind of people. They're just uh, positive people. They're the kind of people you can't help but smile when you're with or you're talking to or sending texts with. It's just they're those kind of people. So Reed was the guy that I was in contact with during the whole time. And um, he had called me once and said, um, hey, do you want to march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade with Chuck Liddell? And I'm like, like, it sounds crazy for me to even say that. Like, who am I? And I'm going to march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade, this proud Italian guy, although Andrea is half Irish. Um, but yeah, march with Chuck Liddell. Are you kidding me? And that was one of the coolest things that, uh, that I've ever done. And I will say this about Chuck Liddell. At the time, and even now, I'm sure he's still one of the most recognizable people in the world. At the time, even more so. Um, if people want to get an idea of how a professional athlete in the public eye should, and may, I, maybe should is the wrong word, but 
Chuck Liddell is walking around in New York City where there's millions of people around and everybody knows who Chuck Liddell is. I can't even begin to tell you how many times he stopped to take a picture, to sign an autograph, to talk to people. It was unbelievable to watch. This is a guy that couldn't walk two feet without someone saying, oh, my God, the Iceman. Hey, Chuck Liddell, can I get a picture? Can I get an autograph? Blah, blah, blah. The, the guy accommodated every single person. It was It was so cool to see. And, you know, there are higher profile athletes, let's say, in the major mainstream sports, depending on how you look at it. But you put Chuck Liddell in a room, most people are going to know Chuck Liddell over most of the other people there. And this guy was just unreal to the fans, unbelievable to the fans. It was so cool to see. I had I had mentioned to Reed about the lawsuit. And Reed goes, look, he goes, you got to do what you got to do. He goes, I don't see it affecting anything that we're going to do for you. Um, he goes, you know, I'll let Dana know, but he goes, I wouldn't worry about it. He goes, I don't think any differently of you. You have to take care of yourself and take care of your family. And, and, you know, like I said, I'll let you know what Dana says, but I wouldn't really give it a second thought. And to Dana's credit and Reed's credit, UFC credit, it was a, a totally separate thing. And most people that reached out to either myself or my family, uh, you know, be it Andrea, be it my sister, because you know, I had put out there that she was a, a, a cop. So most people were great. Uh, that car dealership that I mentioned that was so gung-ho behind my back, you know, uh, behind me, uh, not behind my back, just, you know, like pumping me up. Well, when the lawsuit was announced, all of a sudden they couldn't uh, they couldn't be bothered answering messages or return, returning texts. And listen, like I said, if you're pro-law enforcement, I get it. I am. I, I make no bones about it. I am too. But if me if me presenting a lawsuit rubbed you the wrong way, just come out and say, look, I don't agree with what you're doing with the lawsuit. We don't really want to be involved. And uh, that would have been it. Like, just be, be an adult about it. So uh, when UFC 128 came, obviously, I wasn't I was no longer invited to their suite. Uh, the invitation to watch Islanders and Devils games from their suite also was uh, unofficially rescinded. So uh, so that was fine, though. It was cool. Um you know, it just, it shows people's true colors. And, uh, and like I said, they didn't like what I did, but 98% of the people who were behind me when everything happened did not turn their back on me when I announced the lawsuit. Most people were very supportive and just said, look, I wasn't there that day. It's not for me to decide whether you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. Um, you go for it. And, we're still behind you and and that's it. And that's the UFC was that way. And everyone else was that way. Um, I, I, and I'll tell you what, my, one of my biggest concerns was how people were going to react at work to my sister. Now, my sister is, um, let's say, uh, she can handle herself. She is, uh, maybe the stereotypical New York uh, slash Long Island girl. She's not shy. Um, she'll let you know how she's feeling. And um, if you confront her, expect a battle. That's for sure. That's uh, that's basically how she rolls. And um, so I wasn't necessarily concerned about her in a one-on-one -on -one environment. I really just didn't want anything to come down on her from her superiors. And uh, it was the longest day, her next day at work after the press conference, because I wanted to know, like, how did it go? Did people, were people pissed? And and she basically said, she goes, look, there were a couple of people that, you know, were, were not happy about it. 
Uh, because like I said, there are just some people who don't want to hear the truth. They just are pro law enforcement, no matter what. And, and I understand that. Um, and she understood that she goes, but she goes, I'll tell you what, the majority of the people were like, look, if this is what really happened, I hope he wins because it makes us all look bad. And to me, that was the common sense reaction to the whole thing. Like if I were in my line of work, if there was someone that did my job and did my did my job in a shitty way and it was public knowledge and it was front page news. I don't, I don't want that because it makes the whole industry look bad. So most of the, most of the cops that uh, worked at my sister or reached out to my sister basically had the same reaction. Look, if, if what he's saying is true, then yeah, good luck to him. And then that was good to hear. Uh, over the years I had had police officers in Penn station. Now they could never admit to doing this. Um, but come up to me in, in not in very public areas, let's say. And it was always a little uneasy, especially at the beginning. Cause I didn't know what they were going to say. And every single one of them to a man would basically say, listen, I could never say this in public, but it's the same thing. He goes, you know, good luck to you. I hope that, I hope that you do well. And, and if what you're saying is true, we, we got to get this out there. They all to a man, they all kept saying the same thing. If what you're saying is true, it makes us all look bad. So good luck. And uh, so I had the support of so many law enforcement officers, not just New York City cops, Philadelphia cops. In the area that we lived in, in Philadelphia, there was a very high concentration of uh, Philadelphia police officers, all all great people that we knew there. We were friends with a lot of their, their kids played on the Little League teams with Joey and Dom. So we got to know them pretty well. And you know, like I said, I, I think common sense prevails with so many people. And it was, like I said, if what you're saying is true, good luck to you because it makes us all look bad. So, um, UFC 128 was unbelievable. Uh, we get there and, uh, Andrea and I are sitting at the, uh, sitting at the table. Um, Dana didn't come out. I, uh, he came out a little bit before the main card. So for a lot of the time, uh, Reed Harris, who, by the way, uh, I've never seen a guy with a motor like him. This guy at every event, he's running around. I mean, everybody loves Reed. Uh, the fighters love Reed. He, you know what it is? Cause he treats everyone with respect. And because he does that, everybody, he's like everyone's point person. So this guy, I don't know when I actually, when I, I used to go to events and I would see Reed actually sit down and watch a round of fights. I was actually really happy for him because it meant he wasn't running around. So until Dana came out, Reed would always be checking on us. How are things you need anything, you know, whatever, whatever. And as I mentioned, his wife, Laura, uh, she took care of Joey and Dom. So we were at Dana's table and they were a couple of rows back. I mean, still amazing seats. Um, and you know, this really was the first time um, well, we had met a couple of days before that day before that at the weigh-ins. So, but again, Laura didn't know my family, but if you had seen Laura with my boys, you would have thought that's probably their mom or their aunt or something. Like she just took such good care of them. And, you know, it, it actually gets me emotional, uh, because it was good to see, you know, she, she knew what she was doing. She took care of the boys. They were respectful to her and, didn't drive her crazy. And, uh, Andrea and I had, had fun at the table and every now and then I turned my head, look over and she'd give me the thumbs up or they, I would just see the smile on her face. And it was just like, wow, you know, so, uh, main event happens and, um, you know, well, no, before the main event happens. So the main card happens, uh, Dana comes out 
uh, the Fertitta brothers come out. We, you know, we shake hands. We just chat and everything. Like I obviously I'd met Dana. I didn't meet uh, uh, Lorenzo or Frank Jr. yet, so that was the first time I had met them. And everyone was just so unbelievable. And um, the card at the Rock before this card was um, George St. Pierre against Dan Hardy. That was the main event. And uh, Andrew and I had bought tickets for that. That was the year before. And uh, I remember we were three rows from the top. And I always say, like, I want to be at these events, but when you're sitting that high, you just spend so much time watching the the scoreboard, watching the Jumbotron. And um, I remember uh, in between fights, I put my arm around Dana and I pointed out, like, you know, last time you guys were here for St. Pierre and Dan Hardy, I said, we were up there. We were three rows from the top. And he starts laughing and he puts his arm around me. He goes, well, brother, those days are over. And it was basically for the longest time, if Andrea and I wanted to go to an event, I would just text Dana and, you know, hey, can we get two tickets for this event? Can we get four tickets for this event? And it was a done deal. And just what do you say to that? You know, like, honestly, you know, the reality is, and, I, and I, I'll just, I'll say this about Dana. It's the last thing I'll say. Um, you know, people can say what they want about him. And the reality is, First off, he didn't have to do anything for us. And he went to say he went above and beyond is an understatement. But let's say, let's say if you're the biggest cynic out there and you want to say, well, he did it because it was good press. Sure. He did it because it was good press. Because when everything first happened and I kept mentioning UFC, he uh he met with me, he offered me you know to sit with him at the event. He sent me twenty thousand dollars worth of merchandise. Like I have no idea. Uh, but the, nobody knew about that, you know? Um, but let's just say you're the ultimate cynic and you're like, oh, I don't like him. He did it for the, uh, he did it for the, uh, um, the attention. Well, okay. What about the next three or four or five years when I could just text him and ask him for tickets? And it was always a done deal. It was no questions asked. Um, what about that? And there was no media attention there. Like, honestly, if he was just there to get the attention for ufc 128 and have me there and it wasn't like he didn't parade me around like a show pony at the event it's his event it's not it's nothing happened andrew and i watched the entire event from his table i wasn't brought in the cage it wasn't anything where he was saying hey look this is the guy that did this it was just hey sit at my table watch the event with with me you know so it wasn't like he used it for any sort of uh show or anything like that but like I said, even if you're the biggest cynic, then what about the next five years? Hey, there's an event in Washington, D.C. We want to come down. Can we get tickets? Hey, there's an event in Philadelphia. Um, there's an event in Connecticut. Wherever wherever it was, and it was like done, done, done. So I understand people don't necessarily like the guy, and, uh, and I get it. I mean, I don't like certain people, and people can't understand why. But uh, in this household, no matter uh, till the day we all stop breathing, Dana White is revered. I will... Uh, I will always love that man for what he did, and um, I was just—it uh, was just great. It was just like speechless. And I always say, when New York City turned its back on me, it was people like Dana White that really built built me up and uh, supported us, and just was was always there, you know. Uh, so that was an amazing night. And then, um, you know, like I said, it was never brought—the lawsuit was never brought up again with the UFC. They didn't care. Uh, like I said, most people didn't care. It was they it was kind of like that's your business, and 
what you did was this and what you did was that and it's still amazing and this uh, other part of it that's your business we don't care it's you take care of that we just want to do nice things for you okay perfect so getting back to the court case so we uh we had the press conference ed worked up the uh the complaint i guess you call it it went to the courts and then he went to court a few times. I didn't have to go with him. He would always tell me, okay, we're, I'm going to court in two days. This is what's going to happen. Like basically just held my hand throughout the whole thing. And he goes, this is what's going to, this is what, uh, this point in the process, um, probably go one more time. Then we'll start discovery. Okay. Perfect. God, how many times have I said, okay, perfect. Um, so he went, he went, and then one day he says, okay, so we have to, uh, I need you and Andrea to meet me in New York City. We are going to meet with the insurance adjuster for the city. He wants to do an interview with you. Okay. So we go and uh, he interviews me. I forget how long. It was, the guy was cool. Very cool. You know, basic questions. Uh, he interviewed Andrea for a couple of minutes. Not not too long. But uh, when the interview was over, Ed says, okay, we're good. Let's go. And um, the guy goes, hey, uh, Ed, do you have a second? And uh, he goes, yeah, go downstairs. I'll meet you outside. And when Ed came out, he had this big smile on his face. And I'm like, is everything okay? He starts laughing. He goes, yeah, I'd say it's okay. And I go, what's up? He goes, well, the guy just told me that you are New York City's worst nightmare. And I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, he this is what he does for a living. And he interviews a lot of people. And he goes, you are New York City's worst nightmare. He goes, A, because you've never been in trouble. Uh, by the way, uh, the police did run a report on me. I forget what it's called, and I know they ran it twice. Uh, it's basically a report to find out. I don't even know if I had any convictions, like even if I was ever arrested, uh, anything. I guess anything pops up on this report. Uh, if I've ever farted in church, I don't know what it is, but they first ran the report on me after the incident happened, and then they re-ran the report again after I announced the lawsuit. Um and I was nothing but cooperative with the police. They sent detectives to my job to take swabs of, of, you know, my DNA. And I thought that was weird. Like, why would you, why would you take my DNA? I didn't commit a crime or anything, but it was cool. I look, like I said, everyone's got a job to do. And like I've said, I have nothing to hide. So, you know, they took, they swabbed my mouth. I would have given them blood. I would have given them piss. I would have given them whatever they want. I have nothing to hide. But again, I don't. I was like, I don't. You don't do this for all victims, right? Like again, I'm not a criminal here. But again, nothing to hide. Have at it. You want a stool sample? I'll give you that too. Didn't matter. Um. So they ran that report again. It basically what came out was a blank piece of paper. There's nothing on there. So going back to the insurance adjuster, he goes, "Well, he's never been in trouble." He remembers everything in great detail. He speaks well. He speaks calm. He goes, he doesn't get rattled. Um, he goes on the stand. He goes, listen, he goes, there's a difference between talking to me in, a, in an office and being on the stand. He goes, but he goes, this guy knows his stuff. He knows what he's talking about. And he, and he just he tells you everything. And he goes, I, he goes, he's a nightmare for the city. And that's basically it. So I left there feeling 10 feet tall that day. I was like, wow, this is great. So, uh, you know, like I had said, when I had first met Ed, he goes, yeah, we're going to go do this. We're going to do this. Then we're going to do discovery. And then he said, just don't be surprised when they 
file a motion to dismiss. And the one thing I didn't say was in that meeting, and he showed me that Warren versus District of Columbia. He said to me that day, they're going to say they don't owe a duty to protect you. And it's the kind of thing where when you hear it for the first time, you're like, what the fuck? It's on their cars. That's always their motto. They say serve and protect. It's like, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And he goes, okay, well, read this. And it was the Warren versus District of Columbia. And he, and he said a couple other cases. He goes, this is what they're going to do. He goes, whether they're successful or not, I don't know. He goes, but trust me, this is exactly what's going to happen. Okay. So after the meeting with the insurance adjuster, I figured the next step was going to be discovery where we provide evidence and they provide evidence and they and we exchange it. And then the next step, I guess, uh, would be them filing the motion to dismiss, which, of course, we would fight and then we'd hopefully get a trial date and we'd go from there. Funny thing happened after I spoke to the insurance adjuster. Well, all of a sudden now they weren't interested in the discovery phase. They wanted, they went right for the kill. They wanted to dismiss it right away. And I don't know if they ever reached out to Ed for, to try to settle with me. Um, because I tell this to people all the time and I don't know if people believe me or not, but we never got to the point. Ed, Ed and I never got to the point where we discussed the dollar amount. We never did. And, uh, because, and listen, again, if if New York City came to me and said, we want to give you X amount of dollars to settle this and make it go away, if the number was right, I'm not going to lie. I'm a human. I have a wife. I have two kids I have to support. If it was a number that would have significantly changed my life, I definitely would have considered it. I mean, listen, I'd like to sit here and say, no, it was never about the money. Well, it was never about the money, but I'm not going to deny the fact that if they're going to throw a life-changing amount of money at me, that I wouldn't at least consider it, um, I'd be lying to you. And, and I feel like throughout this whole process, whether you're listening to this or you heard me in any other interview, I've always been honest. You you tell someone, we're going to give you X amount of dollars, and that per individual person situation automatically changes with something like that. There's not a person alive that's going to go, no, no way. They're going to at least think about it. So Ed and I had never discussed a number at all, never got to that point. So I don't know if they had ever approached Ed. Maybe they did, and it was such a ridiculously low, low number that he didn't, uh, he didn't bring it to me. But whatever, that's fine. So he calls me and he goes, uh, they filed a motion to dismiss. And I'm like, what? I, they didn't even, we didn't even do discovery yet. He goes, they want it done. Motion to dismiss. So I said, well, what happens next? He goes, well, they filed the motion. I get the motion. Now I have to fight the motion to dismiss. And he goes, basically, they're telling the judge that they think the case should be dismissed. And now it's my job to convince the judge that it shouldn't be dismissed, that we should move forward. He goes, you know, it's standard operating procedure. He goes, normally we do discovery first, but they want to move forward with this. So whether or not it had anything to do with my interview with the insurance adjuster, I don't know. But if it didn't, it really was uh, pretty coincidental. So then uh, Ed goes, well, I'll I'll work on it and I'll be in touch and let you know uh, what's going on. So I forget how many how many weeks went by. And, um, you know, I've been in, you know, I'd been in touch with Ed a few times, whatever. And, and one day he calls me. And he says, look, I have bad news. And I said, what? He goes, um, I've been working on this for weeks and 
racking my brains. And he goes, I met with several of my colleagues. I showed them the motion to dismiss. I honestly, um, I don't know if there's a way that I can fight this. He goes, I can't come up with an argument that is going to really overturn this. And he is again, it's, it's based on precedent. It's based on cases that have happened in the past where, where they cite similar things. And these cases have all been thrown out. He goes, I honestly, I don't feel confident in putting together something for you. So I need to recuse myself from this case. So I re- I was at work. I remember I, I was blown away. I was in a, in a common area at work that wasn't being used at the time. So I had the whole area to myself and I was like, oh, all right, um, this is a bomb. Uh, what are my options? So he goes, well, the first thing you can do is just, we can drop everything. And then, you know, you just move on with your life. Uh, he goes, you could try to find another lawyer. Uh, he goes, the issue with that is, um, I'm working, I'm, I took your case on contingency. He goes, once I recuse myself, um, when I speak to your other lawyer, they're going to ask me what happened. I'm going to tell them what happened. I'm going to tell them that I didn't see a way to, uh, combat this motion to dismiss. So they might, be a little hesitant to take the case on. And he goes, more than likely, they're not going to take the case on contingency. So you're going to have to come up with some money ahead of time. And I said, all right, well, that's not really an option. I go, hey, let me ask you a question. I said, uh, I know this is going to sound crazy, but could I represent myself? And he goes, absolutely. He goes, it's called pro se. He goes, it's nothing I would recommend. He says, but in your case, you have nothing to lose. And he goes, a lot of times judges tend to be more sympathetic to pro se litigants. So he said, if you don't want to drop it and you don't have money to hire another lawyer, he goes, I think that that's your only other option. So he goes, if that's what you want to do, I will let the courts know that, uh, I'm recusing myself. You're going to continue pro se. And if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to call me. He goes, I would, he, I think his exact term was, I would advise you to ask me questions. He goes, this is going to be pretty daunting. He goes, so I would recommend that you keep in touch with me. I am more than happy to help you. So, okay. And I, I think that was early in the day. So I didn't want to wait all day. So I know I called Andrea. I told her what happened. And um, I said, look, we're going to move on. I'll do the best that I can. One thing I want to bring up now, it, it'll be comic relief in a way. So I would, and I don't know where this fits in chronologically. I think, let me see. Okay. Yeah. So this was, uh, 2012, May, 2012. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. I happened to stumble across this years later <clears throat> when you just, I not so much anymore, but I would always Google Terrence Howell, Tamara Taylor, Marcelo Razzo, see if they're in the news and stuff. And one day, uh, I Google Terrence Howell and there's a Facebook page, uh, NYPD Facebook page. And they're talking, you know, one of the, the, uh, the post was talking about, uh, fine, finest of the finest, which I don't remember if that's what it was, but now that I, I'm looking at the press release from the PBA and, uh, it was just talking about police officers that were cited for different things. So, A press release was written on May 3rd, 2012, and the press release was written by uh, 
well, I don't know if Patrick Lynch wrote the press release, but he was the president of the Police Benevolent Association. I think he still is. And the press release is about the finest of the fine, finest of the finest. It's, it reads as follows. 38 members of the NYPD, 32 police officers, four sergeants, one detective, and one deputy inspector, including police officer Kevin Brennan, who survived a point-blank shot to the head, were honored by their peers for acts of heroism and bravery today at the New York City Patrolman's Benevolent Association annual Finest of the Finest Awards Luncheon at Bridgewater's at the Fulton Market, Manhattan. PBA President Patrick J. Lynch said, Receiving a Finest of the Finest Award is particularly meaningful because it is an honor bestowed by your fellow New York City police officers. The men and women that we honor today have put it all on the line in the performance of their duty. They have faced the fire, stood firm, and triumphed against the odds, and have earned the right to be listed among the finest of New York's finest. Along with those honored for actions during combat with armed assailants, our police officers who saved the life of a two-month-old infant intervened in a vicious, fatal knife attack and an off-duty officer who collared a multiple sex abuser on the subway and was nearly killed in the process. So this sounds like there are legitimate heroes out of the 38 people that were honored. Now, I don't know all the cases. I didn't read all of them, but I did read one. Because one, of course, had special interest to me. So I'm not denying that some of the police officers earned this award, finest of the finest. I would venture to say most of them did. I can promise you one of them didn't. But let me read you what was in the press release about this particular officer. And I quote, Police officer Terrence Howell of Transit District 2 is named the finest of the finest for extremely brave, intelligent, and resourceful action taken to defend his life and the lives of innocent civilians in apprehending, without further bloodshed, a knife-wielding serial stabber and murderer. This officer was on duty in the subway when he came face-to-face -face with a man who had become the most sought-after suspect in the city because, over the course of 28 hours, he had committed three fatal stabbings, two carjackings, and a hit-and-run homicide. The suspect had just stabbed a passenger, that's me by the way, and was holding his knife at a 90-degree angle above his head. Aiming his weapon at the suspect, Officer Howell gave the order to drop the weapon, then grabbed the knife with one hand and holstered his gun with the other. While radioing for assistance, he actually managed to cuff the struggling maniac without firing his weapon, bringing a one-man crime wave to an abrupt halt. Now, if you don't know what happened, and you weren't on the subway that day, you're thinking, this guy is fucking Superman. He can apprehend this guy. He can disarm him, all while holding his gun, but not pulling it out of the holster. This guy is amazing. I, I don't know what my problem is. Why aren't I grateful for this? That is an actual press release. 
I'm going to let that sink in for a second. The New York City PBA issued that press release. And let me take it one step further. Let's say the 37 other people on that press release, what they wrote in that press release about those 37 other people was 100% factual. Doesn't it sort of taint it when you're put on the same press release with that unbelievable lie? I mean, unbelievable. Now, I give them credit. Maybe they knew it was bullshit. Well, let me rephrase that. They knew it was bullshit. So maybe they're just like, look, we're lying anyway. Let's make them sound like fucking Superman. I don't know. But I read that and I'm like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? You actually said that. And this guy goes up and accepts this award. Are you like people say to me all the time? Well, you know what really happened and he knows what really happened. He has to live with that the rest of his life. I don't know how he sleeps at night. And I tell him he sleeps fine at night. And do you know how I know it? Well, one, my friend Kenny, who is a New York City police officer, thankfully retired now, once confronted him about it. And physically, Terrence Howell is twice Kenny's size. But he doesn't have an ounce of the heart that Kenny has. He doesn't have the ounce of fire that Kenny has. He doesn't have the ounce of passion that Kenny has. And Kenny basically said, oh, you're the guy who stopped Maxim Gellman. And he's like, yup. And he basically just emasculated him then and there. I'm surprised that people didn't have to rip Kenny off him, to be honest with you. That's the kind of guy and the kind of friend that Kenny is. Also, there was a case that Terrence Howell was involved in, and he was called to the stand. Now, I happen to know the lawyer who was on the other side. And he basically said to him, so you're Terrence Howell. Yes, you're the guy that stopped Maxim Gellman. Well, isn't it true that Joe Lozito did this? And isn't it true that Joe Lozito did that? And he basically told me. And the judge at one point was like, where are you getting at, counselor? What are you getting at? And it was just like, I'm just calling it to question the man's character. It's obvious what happened that day. And this man still insists that he had something to do with it. And he said, you know, boy, he was glaring at him the whole time and everything. So obviously in his mind, Terrence Howell has convinced himself that he did something that day. Okay. What I always say is I would have crucified Terrence Howell, New York City, and the NYPD on the stand that day. And why? Because if I bring that up into court, how can I lose? I was there. I just bring up this statement and, and just rip this statement alone. I could have had fun with for an hour, just piece by piece, because I would have compared that to my wounds and said, okay, where was I when that happened? And where was I when this happened? And where were you again? And just reenact the scene because none of that jives up to what really happened. See how I described the incident to you. I can prove it with pictures. I can prove it with scars. I can prove it any which way you want. I can prove it. There's no way on God's green earth, this guy or the city is going to be able to prove what the PBA put out there. So I had to read that to you because I think that was, that was pretty funny. Um, but like I said, for those of you thinking that this is something that Terrence Howell has to live with, he lives just fine. He believes it. He believes it. It's remarkable. He believes that this actually happened. Good for him. I would hate to have that guilt on my conscience. He obviously doesn't care because he thinks he's a hero. Okay. That's the funny thing. 
People have called me a hero for 10 years and every time I got a, I got a message today from someone on Instagram that wants to do an interview with me uh, because of my heroism and they want to start doing a series of heroes, either people that are in fiction or real life heroes. My answer to them is the same. I don't think I fit what you're looking for, but I'm more than happy to answer your questions because I will tell you and anyone else, I'm not a hero. I, I'm not a hero. I was put in a position that day and I did what had to be done and you know, whether you want to say I save people's lives, that's for you to say. That's not for me to say. It's not. It, it, I'm a hero. If you want to say I'm a hero, I appreciate that. I don't think I'm a hero. I just think I'm a regular guy who did what had to be done that day. Uh, Terrence Howell will tell you he's a hero. Marcelo Razzo, this guy got credit for, for his swift action that day, even though he was off duty. The motherfucker wasn't even on the train. So tell me again how there's no corruption. But Anyway, so um, I so I, I asked Ed, I said, okay, so when's our next court date? When's the next court date? And then he told me the date. He goes, what you're going to do is you are going to go and ask for a continuance because now you're taking over the case. And, um, you know, he said they should give you that. They should grant you the continuance because you're pro se and um, you need time to prepare your response to their motion. So he goes, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to go, they're going to call you up there, and you're just going to present yourself. And we went over what I was going to say and, and all this other stuff. And the two guys at the desk that day, they were they had the good cop, bad cop. You know, it's a poor analogy to, to say, but uh, they had it down perfect. The first guy couldn't be bothered. He, I, it was almost like I was annoying him um, that uh, how dare I show up and ask for more time. The one guy was really cool and he understood. And the other guy was like, like I said, I was really like, it was off-putting to him that I came in there and I just didn't want to say give up. And they reluctantly uh, gave me more time to prepare my uh, response. And, you know, what I tell people all the time is, um, you know, the lawyers for the city, this is what they do for a living. And they have access to, I would imagine, thousands of law books and obviously I would imagine websites on the internet that uh, I don't have access to. So they put their motion together and, and it was pretty extensive. And uh, what I have is my computer and Google. I also have a full-time job that doesn't uh, encapsulate any of this. So what I would have to do was depending on when my uh, shift started and shift ended, I would have opportunity before work sometimes after work sometimes uh, if I was off from work, I devoted a lot of time during the day to make my case as to why the motion shouldn't be dismissed. And that was a big project, probably one of the biggest projects I had ever undertaken. But to be honest with you, one of the things I am most proud of in my life, and um, I don't want to say they made it easy, but they listed I don't know, a hundred cases, why my case should be dismissed. And out of all those cases, exactly zero of the cases were in any way, shape or form similar to what happened to me. Um, and, and, you know, and I'm not doing this. So you buy my book. I'm not, um, the book, I put the book out. I didn't realize it. The book has been out since 2014. Um, I made really no money off the book and I am fond, unfortunately not fond of saying, but I have said many times, I think I've given away more free copies of the book than is sold. Um, I wish the book was a bestseller and, um, it's not, 
and uh, but when I wrote the book, it was really um, oh god, it was like I I say to everyone as I wrote each chapter, it was like another brick, another load of bricks coming off my shoulder. It was therapeutic for me to do it. I'm happy I did it. Do I wish I sold more copies? Absolutely, but. I didn't, and so be it. I still give it away when I have guests come on the show. Uh, I appreciate their time. I, I give them a T-shirt, a podcast T-shirt, and if they haven't read my book or had a copy of my book, I always offer them a copy of the book. Um, like I said, it's the least I can do. Uh, I'm not trying to sell the book here, but what I'm what I am going to say is, if you want to see every case that they wanted to that they use to support their decision to dismiss my case. It's in the book. I took every case that they um, put out there and I said, basically, this has nothing to do with my case. I, I gave examples why it had nothing to do with my case. Um, a lot of the cases were orders of protection cases. Again, there was no order of protection in, in my case. Uh, there was a case that compared my case to a broken fence in a, 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 surrounding a school. There was a case in there that compared my case to office furniture. There was a case in there that compared my case to, um, I forget if it's a luxury car or a sports car. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that they were using. They legitimately put these cases in their motion to dismiss and said, well, these cases were dismissed. This case should be dismissed. And I'm reading this going, how the fuck does this one case have anything to do with this case? So... It was time consuming. I couldn't, I, I wish I would have kept track of the hours I worked on it, but in a way it was sort of fun because I'm going, what? So I Googled the actual case. I'd read what the case was about and I would go, well, this case is about a broken fence. Um, how exactly is that relative to my case? Oh, this case is about office furniture. How is this case relative to my case? Um, then they put in stuff that was just outright laughable. One of the things they said is that my case should be dismissed because I did not utilize all the safety equipment provided to me on a subway. And the example they gave was seatbelts. So my case should be dismissed because I did not use all the safety equipment on the subway up to and including seatbelts. Now, Yes, I said seatbelts because there are some of you who have been on subways and just said seatbelts. Subways don't have seatbelts. That's right. They don't have seatbelts. You know what else they don't have in each car? Safety equipment. Now, I'm sure probably if not in every car, maybe every other car, there is a first aid kit. I'm sure it's a typical first aid kit. There is no safety equipment there, though, for the public to use. And they're fucked. There are no seatbelts on the subway. But they legitimately put this stuff in their motion to dismiss. So I sort of looked at it as a challenge. And I put together my motion and uh, or my response. And like I said, I, I don't I always say I don't do a lot of things well, but there are certain things that I impress myself with, and they are few and far between. But my opposition to their motion is something that I am very proud of. And when I sent it to Ed, he looked it over and he goes, I would make a few changes, but overall, he goes, this is, this is great for, for a layman to submit this. He goes, this is pretty good. Um, you know, obviously someone that's in law would come up with something better. And I, I have no problem saying that, but, 
Um, he said, this is pretty good. So he said, I would change this. It really wasn't so much changing it. He, it was basically, you don't need to put this in and this is repetitive. So maybe get rid of this. But other than that, he didn't make too many wholesale changes. So, uh, the court date comes. And again, it wasn't that I saw the judge at all. I saw, uh, I believe I saw the same two guys, the clerks, and, um, it was, uh, I, I submitted it and I had to submit one for the court. I had to su submit one for something. Uh, I think I had to submit one for the, uh, corporate corporation council for the city, or I had to mail them one. I, I may have, I think, no, I, I dropped off a copy to their office. Uh, I didn't see the lawyer that was on the case, Michael Jibbick. Um, he's a snake. I mean, listen, he's a, I shouldn't say that. Uh, look, I don't know the guy. Uh, I spoke to him once on the phone. He sounded pretty arrogant, but again, why would he want to talk to me? I'm trying to, uh, you know, sue the city. And, uh, you know, he, he was, he was, a <laughs> he's a lawyer. How's that? And, um, that's that. So, um, I submitted my, uh, my papers and then it was kind of just sit back and wait because now it's in the hands of the judge. And, uh, the way that I figured it was, all they want to dismiss this case and I don't blame them, but all I have to do is put doubt in the minds of the uh, doubt in the mind of the judge that, yeah, they want to dismiss this case, but did you see what they used, what they used to support their motion to dismiss? Now, does it have anything to do with my case? So I don't think that I need to come up with something earth shattering. Um, I don't think I need to, to come up with anything that, uh, is going, the judge is going to go, holy shit. Yeah. Fuck. We have to go forward with this. All I think I need to do is put a shred of doubt in her mind, because if I put a shred of doubt in her mind, then why wouldn't we go to trial? So I was convinced that I had done that. Then. Let's see, what's the date? July 25th of 2013. Um, oh, and, and, and let me get back to this. So uh, Maxim Gelman actually did me a favor um, because he, what happened was I got it. One of the times I was talking to um, Ed, he basically said that, um, no, uh, was it Ed? It might've been Ed. It was someone. And he said, Maxim Gelman's being examined by this doctor and because uh, he was going to go with the insanity plea. And he goes, basically, this doctor is very well respected by all sides. And if this doctor rules Maxim Gelman is insane, then he, they can go ahead with the insanity plea. If this doctor says that Maxim Gelman is not insane and sane enough to stand trial, then that's what will happen. So when he was examined by the doctor, the doctor deemed him fit to stand trial and once he did that then maxim gelman just pled guilty to everything so uh maxim gelman received 50 years for each murder and 25 years for attempted murder on me so he is now residing uh in an upstate new york correctional facility um living off partly my tax dollars and um fuck him but because he pled guilty that enabled because we couldn't Present, and I, that's why I think it was Ed. We couldn't go forward with the lawsuit until 
um, that the criminal case was was uh, settled. So once Maxim Gelman pled guilty, that opened the door for us to uh, file our suit. If he had not pled guilty and, and they uh, and had to go to court and they had to do a, a, a criminal uh, case, that could have taken weeks, months, whatever. So I would have had to wait. But because he pled guilty, that sped up the process for us to file our lawsuit. So getting back to the judge, the Honorable Margaret A. Chan now has the motion to dismiss by New York City and the NYPD and my opposition to the motion to dismiss. And I'm sitting at work. I was working off-site in the summer at Lincoln Center. The New York Philharmonic is off. There are a bunch of festivals. And I was working off-site. And um, I received a call from Ed. And I couldn't pick it up because I was working. But when they, when uh, I was done working, I called him back. And I said, hey, Ed, what's up? Now, I hadn't spoken to Ed in a little bit because once I filed my papers, um, that was it. It was just a wait and see. So when he called me, I thought it was a little weird, but hey, that's that's Ed. And I said, what's up? He goes, I just want to let you know that um, they dismissed your case. And I go, oh, what? He goes, yeah, they dismissed your case. And I go, well, well, how do you know? And I don't know. I go, didn't they know? They knew that you had to recuse yourself. He goes, yeah, the courts didn't call me. The New York Post called me. They had heard. You know, he goes, there's different websites online where you can monitor stuff. And there was, an, you know, they put... They had uploaded the uh, documents, her emotion, her uh, um, dismissal. So they must have read it, and they maybe they didn't know that I recused myself. So they reached out to me. Um, the papers will be available for us to view tomorrow. And he goes, "I'm sure they're going to mail you a copy, but I just want to let you know they they dismissed your case." And that was on some levels even worse than the initial attack. I I was devastated. I was uh, I was crushed. You know, uh, it was like being attacked all over again, again. And, uh, you know, then that night I had to, uh, you know, once I was done working, I had to catch the train and, and, uh, you know, catch the subway back to Penn station and then catch the train, my two and a half hour commute back home. And again, I didn't, uh, I didn't tell Andrea on the phone. I waited till I got home and got home and, uh, I told her they dismissed the case and there was yelling you know, not, not at each other. We were pissed and there was crying because we were pissed and just like, uh, what, what can we do? And basically we were back to, uh, ground zero. We could appeal, but that was going to cost money, which I didn't have. And so basically I was screwed. So, um, I have right here on my screen, I have the, uh, the, uh, judge chance document where she uh she dismisses my case and uh let's see defendant city of new york the city moved to dismiss this action and plaintiff submitted op opposition pro se although they had an attorney of record again the attorney of record recused himself uh the city served its reply papers on the attorney of record uh the motion was held in abeyance until the plaintiffs and their counsel submitted a consent to withdraw as attorney dated April 10, 2013. Um, the city has since provided its reply papers to the Lazitos. Uh, that, I guess, is really just um, in terms of Ed recusing himself and them getting the papers, whatever. The decision on this motion to dismiss is as follows. Um, this is an action to recover for personal injuries sustained by Mr. Lazito and a derivative action by Ms. Lazito. Mr. Lazito was brutally attacked by a wanted fugitive while he was aboard an uptown bound number three train 
in the county, city, and state of New York on February 12, 2011 at approximately 8.45 a.m. Then fugitive and now convicted felon with a 225-year sentence, Maxim Gelman, boarded the train after murdering four people and assaulting several others within a short 28-hour time span. During his last burst of terror, Gelman was inside the frontmost subway car on the number three train at the same time as Mr. Lazito and two New York City police officers, police officer Terrence Howell and police officer Tamara Taylor. The officers were notified of reports that Gelman was on foot in the subway tunnels between 34th and 42nd Street. Uh... In pursuit of Gelman, the officers boarded the first car and proceeded to enter the motorman's booth at the front end of the subway car. The subway car slowly proceeded into the tunnel between 34th Street and 42nd Street and came to a stop between stations. At this point, Mr. Lazito had no interaction with the police officers nor Gelman. Gelman, who was in fact on board the same subway car, approached the closed motorman's booth and claimed he was a police officer. Denied from entering, Gelman turned around and walked towards Mr. Lazito. Another passenger approached the motorman's booth and excitedly motioned for the officers to come out. Gelman randomly confronted Mr. Lazito without provocation. So some of the details in there may be a little off, but you get the gist of it, okay? By plaintiff's account, Gelman stood before him and complained, you're going to die, you're going to die. Then Gelman lunged at Mr. Lazito with an eight-inch knife, cutting him, cutting and stabbing him in the face, hands, neck, and head. Never the neck, uh, the head. I mean, maybe they're they're considering uh, one of the wounds to the back of my head that kind of trailed down to the neck, but never the neck, and I never said the neck. Mr. Lazito heroically maneuvered the knife away from Gelman and subdued him on the subway floor. The officers left the motorman's booth and restrained Gelman in handcuffs. Mr. Lazito claimed the police officers did not emerge from the motorman's booth to apprehend Gelman until the attack on him was underway. Officer Howell's recollection of the events described how he observed something made of metal in Gelman's hands when Gelman approached the motorman's booth. Officer Howell yelled gun and took cover in the motorman's booth. Officer Howell ordered Gelman to drop his weapon, an order that was ignored, and he proceeded to physically remove and recover the knife from Gelman's hand. Officer Howell placed Gelman in handcuffs. Now do you understand why, for, until the day that I die, I will forever regret not being able to go to court? This is what I'm talking about. This whole paragraph is bullshit. You don't. Th I'm getting goosebumps now. You don't think I want to get this guy on the stand and go... So you're, you say this happened and you say this happened. So if that happened, how did this happen to me? And if this happened and you did this, how did this happen to me? This to me, and I'm not a lawyer by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm not brighter than the average person. To me, this would be like shooting fish in a barrel for me. For a lawyer, forget about it. But for me, I would have loved the opportunity. The uh, statement continues. The crux of Mr. Lazito's claim lies in the seconds that it took the police officers to intervene and eventually apprehend Gelman. Plaintiffs claim that the officers negligently secured their own safety in the motorman's booth while observing the attack on Mr. Lazito. There, my voice cracks. Plaintiffs also claim the police officers were negligent in failing to recognize Gelman when they boarded the train and in failing to heed the warnings made by another passenger. Yes, when the guy you're looking for presents himself to you on a silver platter on the other side of the door, yeah, you're negligent when you're there to arrest him. Hey, stupid, come out and do your job. And then the other guy came up there and he wanted him to come out and do the same thing. So, uh, yeah, that's my complaint.
continue. The attack on Mr. Lazito was shocking and horrific, as was every confrontation that Gilman had during his 28-hour crime spree. The crimes against Mr. Lazito were made even more compelling by his own narrative provided in his opposition. Mr. Lazito's pro se opposition papers are thoughtful, eloquently written, and demonstrated his zest and love of life, which propelled him to survive the attack by Gelman and defend himself. Mr. Lazito described in dramatic detail the blows and defensive maneuvers he used to disarm and take down Gelman. I want you to understand this next sentence that I'm going to read. So the previous few sentences in this paragraph, they, they create a certain, like you're, you're saying, wait, the judge said that. And and she dismissed the case. Wait, the judge said that. And she dismissed the case. I want you to absorb the next sentence. I'm going to tell you this paragraph concludes with his meaning me, his statements ring true and appear highly credible. What? So my statements appear highly credible. So I did put doubt in your mind. That's all I needed to do was put doubt in your mind. But here's where corruption sets in. Because I'm sure the judge has helped City before. I'm sure of it. I'm sure one hand washes the other a lot of times. So basically, this document is three pages long. And the first two pages, she says what I said happened and what Terrence Howell said happened. She says what I said happened. My recollection of events ring true and appear highly credible. Slam dunk, right? Five hole, home run, grand slam, whatever sports analogy you want to use. I did what I had to do. Continues. However, it is well settled that absent a special relationship, discretionary governmental functions, such as the provision of police protection, are immune from tort liability. See Valdez versus City of New York, Cuffey versus City of New York, Kircher versus City of Jamestown, Yearwood versus Town of Brighton. Despite even very sympathetic facts, public policy demands that a damaged plaintiff be able to identify the duty owed specifically to him or her, not a general duty to society at large. See Lauer versus City of New York, Johnson versus Jamaica Hospital, Paulsgraf versus Long Island Railroad. This is especially so where the individual seeks recovery out of the public purse. See Lauer versus New York City. The law is abundantly clear that no liability flows from negligence in the performance of a police function, unless there is a special relationship. See Yearwood versus Town of Brighton. Even giving Mr. Lazito every favorable inference. See Der Darien versus Felix Contract Corporation. This court nonetheless is bound to grant the defendant's motion to dismiss. Plaintiffs have failed to allege a prima facie case of negligence as these facts do not establish a special relationship. So let me tell you what would have established a special relationship. The way, the simplest form, the way it was explained to me is this. Now, if I got on the train that day and I knew who Maxim Gelman was and I saw him on the train. Now, I also saw the police go in the motorman's booth. Now, I knock on the window and I go, excuse me, excuse me. Um, you're probably here for Maxim Gelman. He's right there. 
And then if Terrence Howell and I have a conversation about that, guess what? Now we have a special relationship because I brought it to Terrence Howell's attention that Maxim Gelman's on the train and he acknowledged my conversation with him. So something as simple as that means everything that I, I submitted and, and the story that I tell. Guess what? Now there's a special relationship. Can you say loophole? I can. How fucking ridiculous is that? The criteria for establishing a special relationship was set forth by the Court of Appeals in Cuffey versus City of New York. The elements of this special relationship are, one, an assumption by the municipality through promises or actions of an affirmative duty to act on behalf of the party who was injured. Two, knowledge on the part of the municipality's agents that inaction could lead to harm. That would be the the example that I'm telling, hey, there's this spree killer that you're looking for. Uh, if you don't get him, bad things could happen because obviously I need to tell the cop that's on the train to arrest the spree killer that knows the spree killer is there, that if he doesn't come out and do his job, that bad things can happen because he's not smart enough to put two and two together on his own. But if I had done that, oh, now there's a special relationship. Number three, some form of direct contact between the municipality's agent and the injured party. And four, that party's justifiable reliance on the municipality's affirmative undertaking. Uh, affirmative undertaking. ID at 260. I don't know what that means. While plaintiffs pointed to the officer's close proximity to the attack and their perceived ability to prevent it. I perceived his ability to prevent it by coming out and do his job. Yes, I'm a genius. Proximity does not create a special relationship, nor does doing your job, apparently. Mr. Lazito conceded that he had no communication or contact with the police officers before the attack took place. The first prong of the Cuffy elements were not met here. No direct promises of protection were made to Mr. Lazito, nor were there direct actions taken to protect Mr. Lazito prior to the attack. Therefore, a special duty did not exist. Again, a simple conversation between me and Howell and him acknowledging the conversation where I tell him, uh, excuse me, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, uh, the guy you're looking for that killed people, uh, yeah, he's there, he's probably going to kill again. Can you come out and do something? That didn't happen. I admit it. It didn't happen. So I'm the loon here. It's fit me for a straitjacket. Okay. Ultimately, this case must be dismissed as a matter of law. See Valdez versus City of New York. Uh, Blackstock versus Board of Education of the City of New York. This dismissal of the lawsuit does not lessen Mr. Lazito's bravery or the pain of his injuries. It merely provides a resolution to this litigation. Accordingly, the defendant's motion is granted and the complaint is dismissed. So let me summarize that for you. Uh, hi, uh, Mr. Lazito, this is Judge Chan. Yeah, I read your um, opposition papers. Holy shit, you're a brave. You're a hero. Um, I... I mean, your your account is astonishing. I have no reason to believe it's not true. It sounds like it's true. Uh, yeah, did you have a conversation with the officer? Uh, no, I didn't have a conversation with the officer. Um, did he promise that he was going to protect you? Uh, no, but he's a police officer. Um, isn't that their job? Uh, well, but he didn't promise you, right? Well, no, but wasn't he on the train? specifically to arrest Maxim Gelman. I mean, isn't that why all the cops are in the subway? Isn't that his job? Wasn't that what he was there for? Yeah, but he but he never promised you, right? Well, no, I, 
I can't say that he promised to protect me. I can't say that he told me he was going to do his job. I, I have a job. No, I don't have to tell anyone I'm going to do my job. I just do it. Well, if he didn't tell you he was going to do his job, then, you know, he can't, you can't sue him. Uh, yeah, but click. Okay. So let me explain something to you people before I let you go. And keep in mind, I tried to cut this session short today and I'm already at an hour and 20 minutes. Let me explain something to you that will probably open your eyes if they're not already open to um, corruption. So what this means is if Maxim Gelman kills me that day, Terrence Howell could stand behind that door like he did and just wait for Gelman to finish taking my life and then come out and do something, arrest him, and that's completely okay. If Terrence Howell is walking down the street and a man is harassing a woman and he, he's attempting to rape her, Terrence Howell, as long as there's no conversation between Terrence Howell and the, and the victim, Terrence Howell can stand there. Now, he didn't do this. I don't want people to confuse this. This is a hypothetical situation. So as a matter of fact, let me take Terrence Howell's name out of this. A law enforcement officer can be walking down the street, see a woman or a man, I, you know, hey, it's 2021, things are different now, uh, being harassed by another person. Looks like, hey, this might end up in a, an assault or a rape. Watch, I'm get, look, I'm going to be a traditionalist. I'm going to make the, the bad guy a man. I'm going to make the victim a woman. The police officer can watch the man violently assault the woman and rape her. He can wait till the man reaches completion. Stand over them. Stand behind them. Wait for him to finish. And then arrest him when he's done. Maybe he watches the whole thing go down. But because there was no promise of protection, he didn't owe that lady a duty to protect. They could sue all they want. And um, they'll get dismissed just like mine. So I want you to understand that. That's where this lies. Now, I will say this. They do not teach you this in the police academy. I believe the, uh, I know enough cops that when this happened, when my case was dismissed, because they didn't know a duty to protect the cops I know, and I'm sure the cops I don't know. Well, again, I can't be sure about the cops I don't know, but I could tell you the cops I know are like, what the fuck does that mean? That's our job. And I go, well, I said, I guess that that boils down to personal character. You think it's your job. That's the character that you have as an individual. But just so you know, in case that's not your character, you're protected by bullshit laws and precedents. And they're just dumbfounded. Like they couldn't believe it. And uh, yeah, so there's so many cops that were blown away by this that had no idea because, and again, I'll, I'll make the statement that I said earlier. I do believe the majority of police officers and law enforcement are good people that want to do right by the public. But there are those that are shitty police officers, shitty law enforcement officers, and there are laws like this to protect them when they fail at doing their job, even if it means people lose their life. And if they don't lose their life, like in the case of a rape or something where you're alive, but your life is damaged forever, it's, it protects them. So obviously I was uh, devastated. My wife was devastated. My kids were devastated. And, um, you know... And I'll, I'll just get back to one other thing, uh, going back to a monetary financial reward. 
I will say this till I'm blue in the face. It's up to you whether you believe me or not. If we were allowed to proceed and a court case happened and I lost in court and the case and, and it was, hey, you know, they don't owe you anything and uh, and you lose. I wouldn't be happy about it at all. But I had my opportunity. I had my day in court. I was able to present my case to a jury of my peers or to a judge, present my case, try to refute what they say, and then it's out of my hands. But I had my day in court. I had the opportunity. Or we go to court, we go through the whole thing, and they said, okay, Mr. Lazito, we find in your favor, your award is a dollar. I would be thrilled because then the system works. Whether I go to court and I lose or I go to court and I win and I win a dollar, I would take that dollar and I would frame it and I would look at that dollar with pride because I know that America works and I know the system works. But the fact is the system doesn't work. The system is broken. The system needs to change. Um, I see people, obviously the last four years, you had pro-Trump people and anti-Trump people. Now you have pro-Biden people, anti-Biden people. And I see people on Facebook and Twitter and everything just supporting these politicians like they're heroes. And, you know, like sort of like a way a 12-year-old would support Justin Bieber back in the day, just because you have this uh, this love for this person that you think is extra special because of their a gift, their talent. And I see people nowadays are like, oh, it's so good to have a real president back. Listen, whether you like Trump or not, or like Reagan or not, or like Obama or not, or like Biden or not, I got to be honest with you. And I know, I know pro-Trump people don't agree with me on this, but once he became president, he became one of them. They don't care about us. These politicians don't care about us. And the higher up the chain that you go, the less they care about us. I don't think a Nassau County politician gives one shit about me or my family or about my neighbor or the guy around the block or the deli owner around the block. I don't think they give a shit. Maybe they give more of a shit than a state senator. Maybe they give more of a shit than the governor. Maybe they give more of a shit than the president because they're more local, but they don't give a shit. These people in power are out for themselves. They are power-hungry people. And I know that there are people that say Trump and Obama are 100% different, and Trump and Biden are 100% different, and Reagan and Jimmy Carter are 100% different. You can think that. I can't sit here and tell you you're wrong. I can only sit here and tell you I vehemently disagree with you. All these politicians are exactly the same. I was the victim of corruption. I don't like calling myself a victim based on what happened on the subway, but I have no problem calling myself the victim of corruption. I was the victim of corruption. I earned that day in court and that was taken away from me. And because I don't, here we go again. I don't have a bank account that I can go, fuck this. We're appealing this. I'm calling a lawyer. I'm getting one of these nut job ambulance chasers. We're going to create a stir. We're going to rattle the cage and we're going to do this. No, again, it's the haves and the have nots. I'm a have not. He who has the gold makes the rules. It's the golden rule. So I have no people in power that support me. I don't have an unlimited bank account to hire the best lawyers to go after New York City and appeal this decision. So what happens? I have to ride off into the subset, um, subset, right off into the sunset, knowing that on one hand, I did everything I could. And I, I don't know if Judge Chan figured that 
by saying the complimentary she think complimentary things she said in her motion in her uh uh dismissal of my case that that was going to make things better for me i don't know if she's thinking well i'm going to screw this guy over but i'm going to say he did a great job and maybe that'll be enough it's not enough i'd rather you say mr lazio is a fuckhead but we have to go through with this case i'd much rather have that um so basically i had to ride into the sunset and uh I wrote my book in 2014 because I wanted everybody to know the real story, the true story in great detail. Um, that book, uh, it was written over the course of a year. I wrote it for nine months. I took three months off. I don't, I wouldn't call it writer's block. Uh, I just needed to recharge. I probably, let's just say I started writing it in January and it was probably around August where I kind of felt burnt out. Because I was basically writing it around my work schedule, similar to when I put in my opposition papers. So um, where I would be home from work and normally I'd be relaxing or running errands or doing this or doing that, I was writing the book. And after a while, I was just burnt out. It was just too much. So uh, I kind of put it aside and I didn't say, well, I'm going to pick this up again whenever. It just so happened that way that I put it aside. I didn't even think about it for about three months. And then one day I just got the inspiration to get back to it. And, um, a couple of months later, the manuscript was done and, uh, the book was self-published and, um, you know, I didn't have a publisher backing me. I didn't, uh, nobody was knocking down my doors for the story. It's so funny because the average person thinks this is such an amazing story. The average person, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been told, I can't believe this hasn't been made into a movie. It hasn't. I'm available. Hollywood call me. You want to buy the rights to my story? Knock yourself out. I have to be involved, though, because I can tell you from experience. There's a lot of bullshit out there. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's been a few documentaries done on the incident, and there are two main ones. Uh, one was done uh, in a series that aired on, I believe, A&E is the channel it aired on. And I could be wrong because it's been on different networks since then. And basically I was called by the production company and they said, look, we're doing a series on um, killers and we're doing a show on Maxim Gelman and you're a big part of the story. We'd love to interview you. Okay, cool. I went to uh, the holiday Inn on old country road in uh, Westbury. I was there for three, four hours. People were very nice. I, I answered every question they had. And, um, Next thing I know, I I see that the series is coming to television. This was going to be the second or third episode in the series. And the in the series description says, uh, Maxim Gelman, 28-hour killing spree, blah, blah, blah. Reign of terror ended when he was apprehended by New York City police on an uptown subway. And I go, oh, this can't be good. So um, I call the network, and I get the runaround. And I basically get in touch with someone. And uh, they said, okay. And I go, look, here's the deal. You can either talk to me or I'm going to have my lawyer call you because uh, I don't like the way this is going. You're presenting this story in a way that isn't true. So uh, I need to know what's going on. And uh, they connected me to someone who wasn't there. I left a message. They called me back right away. And I was told, I was told, look, yeah, uh, well, you know, we can't change the description to say it went down the way you said it because it basically is a he said, she said type thing. And I go, okay, but you put the description down the way they said it. So why is that right? 
And why is my way not right? And they go, well, blah, blah. I go, look, I don't care that you don't put it down the way I said it happened, but I can't live with that description still being there because that's not how it happened. So they made the description more generic. Then I said, well, here's my other issue. This is the description you put, the episode description. So it leads me to believe that the episode is sort of tilted a certain way. And he said, you will not be disappointed with the way that you are presented and your side of the story is presented on the show. And I said, okay, cool. And uh, I said, all right, fine. I will promote this episode on my social media. And I did. And I told everyone who listened, hey, you should watch this documentary. Watch this. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. Blah, blah, blah. Watch this. Right? So I watch it. And they the way they do it is in the beginning, they do like quick, you know, bang, 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 bang clips of people that they interviewed, like one sentence clips. Uh, if it was this and then this and this and this, and it like sets it up. And there was uh, a clip from a writer for a New York newspaper. I can't remember which one it was. And her clip was, well, if it wasn't for the New York City Police Department, who knows how many people he would have killed or something like that. And I go, oh, man, this is not going to end well. And I look at Andrea and she looks at me and um, I'm like, OK, so we sit there, we watch it. And as we're watching it, we're getting more and more angry and people are texting me going, but this isn't what happened. But this isn't what happened. My sister calls me in a rage, in a rage. And I go, look, I don't know. I didn't see it beforehand. That this is look, the guy tells me I'm gonna I'm gonna uh be very happy with how I'm portrayed and my side of the story in this. So let's see what happens. It's an hour long, we're only a half hour in. Uh my my part hasn't come up yet. So uh let's just say it started at nine o'clock. It's on from nine to ten. Um now it's around nine forty five, nine fifty. Now I still haven't been on yet. And again, I don't care. I'm not I want I want the story to be told a true story to be told. I don't need to see myself on TV, but what happens is the way the story ends, the way his rampage ends for good or bad. I'm a big part of that. And now we're at nine, nine 45, I still haven't been on. And now we're going to commercial. So they come back from commercial. Maybe it's nine 52, nine 53. And now here I am. And they put me on TV and I'm on probably for less than 20 seconds. And then that's it. Then the show ends. So now I'm going, wait, you had me there for three and a half hours. You interviewed me. I told you the story from start to finish and you used 15 or 20 seconds of me. Are you serious? So I was pissed. I was pissed. My mom was pissed. My dad was pissed. My sister was pissed. My mother-in-law was pissed. All my friends were pissed. Everyone's pissed that knows the real story. And I, I basically say this is an infomercial for the New York Police Department. Um, basically, that's what it is. And I was furious and I fired off an email to the guy and I said, I just want to let you know, I think what you did is deplorable. I think it's reprehensible. You lied to me. I'm not happy at all with the way it was presented. And you guys will have to live with yourself because this will be replayed over and over again. And you're going to look foolish because that is not how it happened. But have a nice life. And I was I was unhappy. Uh, I don't know how many, maybe a year later, two years later, I, I don't know exactly the time frame. I was contacted by a production company in England and they are doing a similar series on killers and they want to do one on Gelman and they want to interview me because I'm a big part of the story. So now, of course, I still have the, uh, the other one on my mind and I'm still not a hundred percent happy about it. And I tell them, I said, look, I'm going to let you know this. And I said, this, 
this company got in touch with me. They did this series. Do me a favor, watch that episode. And I want you to understand why I'm reluctant to agree to do anything with you and then get back to me. So they did. And they said, okay, I understand completely. Uh, we're going to present it in a different way. We really want you to be a big part of this project. Um, we're going to be over in the States and um, we're going to be interviewing people for the show. We really want you to be a part of it. So I said, well, and, and I said right out from, the, I said from the outset, look, I need, I need to know there, I need certain guarantees. I said, I don't expect you to show me the finished product before it airs, but I can't have this happen again. I refuse to do it. I have to give you my time, which listen, I'm not valuable in terms of me going and curing cancer or splitting the atom, but you're going to need my time. And, uh, I just need certain reassurances. I will not give my permission to be used in this if it's presented in a similar way. And they were very, very cool. They were very understanding. And they ended up coming. I, I went to, I think we was Queens. Uh, they did the interview in a hotel, uh, in the hotel they were staying at. Then we rode the subway for a little bit. And I was very happy with the way that they presented the story because they presented the story. And that's the true story. So... If you're interested in seeing that documentary, that is the documentary that I post every single day on my Twitter account. It's always my pinned tweet. It's about 45 minutes because obviously they have to put in, uh, they have to leave time out for commercials when it's on television. This is the um, the unedited one, so to speak, where it's just 45 minutes straight through, no commercials. Uh, I think they did an amazing job. It is way more factual then the other documentary, which I will never say the name of, if you're dying to find out what it is, it's if you're especially if you're on Long Island, it gets played all the time. But I'm not going to tell you if you want to find it and watch it, be my guest. Uh, you're not going to hear it from me. Uh, if you want to see a documentary on what really happened, please go to my Twitter feed and it is the pin tweet and it is very accurate. So what now? So it's 10 years later. Um, listen, I'm able to do this podcast because I'm alive. And I said this last night, I was on the phone with, uh, with Dean and we were talking about it. And I said, uh, I've been given 10 years of today's that I probably shouldn't have, because when I look at the totality, totality of the situation, I go over the events that happened in, in my head. I go over the amount of blood that I lost. There is no reason why I should be here talking to you today. I should not be here, but I am. And I am very grateful for that, obviously. So 10 years ago, my wife and kids could have very well been burying me, but they didn't. And that's why I say I've been given 10 years of today's. I've been given 10 more years to spend with my wife. I've been given 10 more years to spend with my kids, watch them grow into young men. I'm so proud of them. Um, every day that I have, post this day that everything happened is an absolute blessing to me. It's a gift from above. And I don't take that lightly. So although, yes, when I talk about the situation, when I talk about what went down, I do get mad. When I talk about how I should have my day in court, and that will be the one regret that I'll have in my entire life, that I didn't get my opportunity in court. Yeah, it stings. And yeah, it pisses me off. Now, if you know a lawyer out there, now listen, the statute of limitations have to, it had to have passed, but we know that lawyers can get creative. So this is my open invitation to any law person. If you know a way that we can kind of back, uh, back end around this, 
um, you know, whatever term you want to use to kind of reintroduce this in the courts, I'm all ears. Now, I don't think that there's a possibility. I'm not expecting a phone call. I'm not expecting a, an email. But you know what? You never know. I am more than willing to pick up right where I left off. If there's a way, if there, listen, I was screwed by the court system by using loopholes. So if there's a way for me to get back in using a loophole, fuck, let's do it. Let's do it. I am all for it. I am gung ho. Let's get this done. But I'm also realistic. I don't see that happening. So what I will say is this I am always hesitant to thank people who were in my corner and continue to be in my corner because there were so many people and I can name 10 people and I'll leave someone out. I can name 20 people, 30 people, and I'm going to leave somebody out. So I try not to do it by name. And I know I've named a few people and organizations in the episode here. Uh, I just thought it was key to that particular part of the, the series of events. But if you are a person or representing an organization that reached out to me at any point in the last 10 years with words of encouragement, uh, with an email, with a phone call, with a text, with a tweet, with a Facebook message, with it, however it is that you reached out to me with a card, whatever. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, every single word that anyone has ever said to me uh, has helped me heal and continues to help me heal. This is a process. I will be healing from this until the day that I die. Uh, it's nothing that will ever go away. So if you're one of those people who did anything for me and, and by anything, I mean, even like I said, a quick note, Hey man, keep your head up, you know, whatever, even something as simple as that. I thank you because that means the world to me. Um, I've said it a bunch of times on this show and I say it all the time. New York city turned its back on me but most of humanity did not. And uh, I am so grateful that uh, I had a lot of really good people in my corner and I can't thank you enough. So um, to all those people, thank you for that. Um, you know, thank God that uh, he was watching over me that day that I have the opportunity to go on and live my life and, and uh, watch my kids grow up and eventually watch them get married and eventually make me a grandfather uh, I think I'm going to go with Poppy like my dad does. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be grandpa. I want to be Poppy. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. And one day I will be, uh, you know, God willing, I will uh, be able to hold my grandchildren in my hand. And that's something that if you uh, asked me 10 years ago at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, I didn't think I'd ever even see the light of day again. So uh, I look at every day as a blessing, even on my bad days, because uh, it's better than the alternative. And in the last nine, 10 months, I've had a lot of bad days, but they're still better than being dead, to put it bluntly. So uh, I figured that uh, it would probably be fitting to release this episode this week, the 10 year anniversary. And, um, you know, I I'm always open to questions. If you have any questions about any specifics. I tell people all the time when people approach me for interviews, I'm an open book. There's no question off limits. I'll answer everything to the best of my ability. And I'll be honest as can be because I, I have nothing to lose. Like I said, Judge Judy, when, when you tell the truth, you don't need to have a good memory. Um, but again, I know this is very long. It's definitely going to be a two-parter. Uh, so part one is going to be released on Monday, which is probably today if you're listening to part one. 
and I'm going to release the second part on Tuesday. So, um, like I said, I think I covered it pretty well and, uh, thank you everybody for your support over the years. It, uh, it definitely went a long way in helping me heal and helping my family heal. We appreciate the support and the love from everybody. And, uh, if you have any questions, reach out. And if not, uh, please be safe, take care of yourself. Um, you know, chin down, hands up and definitely watch out. And remember, it's very important, no matter what your station is in life. Um, don't trust anybody to protect you. I learned that the hard way. Uh, most people will look out for themselves and, and I don't, uh, you know what? I shouldn't say that. I, I take that back. Uh, I think everyone's first priority should be themselves, but there are good people out there that look out for, for you, but to be on the safe side, definitely, uh, handle your own business, look out for yourself, look out for your family. And, uh, thank you again to everybody. Please be safe and have a great week. Thank you.